Man City lose here whilst they're not competing. Did get yellow carded very early on in the match for being a bit too eager coming out of her goal and taking out, I think it was Leah Carlton. But, uh... <laughs> Subscribe to the OTB Koyig pod on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. See, it's half past seven. It's Wednesday and it's a win Wednesday for the Republic of Ireland after our 1-0 win last night. <clears throat> Pardon me, in Slovakia. Kathy uh, McNamee is with us today in studio. Kathy, how are you? I'm doing good. I was getting a lot of jokes this morning that I came in in my green, which I didn't even intend, but I'll totally take it as a general support for the girls. <laughs> subconsciousness, it's a very, very powerful thing, right? It sure is. <laughs> Uh, it looks like you're going to be wearing it all the way to the World Cup. Are we Are we like feeling ourselves so much that we're going to say, irrespective of the draw we get now on Friday, that we're pretty confident? I wouldn't say irrespective. I was quite happy last night to see the Netherlands weren't going to be in the same draw as us, uh, although I did feel for the Iceland players. I mean, a goal in the 92nd minute, they just dropped their knees. It was horrible, but... I want to feel optimistic about the playoffs. I think I'm probably more optimistic that we could get to the second or the third round of playoffs in New Zealand and the Inter-Confederation Cup and do something there than maybe this round. But who knows? I mean, this team have pulled out the dirty wins that we didn't think they could get in previous years. And they've shown that they do have the ability to take it to the top teams. And sometimes that's kind of what we need. We need a Sweden to play against. And we don't necessarily need a Slovakia or a Finland as we have seen at times. <laughs> uh, what, so what did you make of the performance and before we get into the, the potential outcomes in the draw because in parts of the first half it was totally fine but then it was like almost a lack of concentration or or I don't know maybe maybe it's we're missing one ball player in midfield who can actually control the tempo of a game and it's not concentration at all it's just that the other side are like actually hang on we, we could step in here I actually don't even think it's our midfield that we're missing I think that's the place that we could really excel if we allow ourselves. What I saw was the same sort of fear creeping in that we've seen from this Irish team that we believe we can't play with the ball at our feet. There was a couple of times where Louise Quinn was putting these big long balls up to our forward line, which is not the sort of ball that like we want Heather Payne or Jessu or even Katie or Denise getting on the end of because they're players who are really technical who are really good with the ball at their feet and we saw that from where the goal came from was when we actually played a bit around the midfield we let ourselves be confident with the ball we let ourselves be confident with our passing Heather Payne's cross wasn't the best thing in the world but it was the right idea and I think we just need to get over this hump somewhere that we can't play with the ball that we're reduced to those long balls because realistically if you're putting those long balls in you want a Louise Quinn or one of the defenders coming up to head it in you don't really want those more technical players there so I think we just need to keep building our confidence this will be another great win to benefit that and to I hope that like Vera Power sit down with the team and look at that video and I know sometimes we've had to play very defensive and that's just been the case but when I was watching the match last night I was like this is a team that we could run rings around if we actually just let ourselves if we let ourselves go let ourselves play Yeah it had the bang of a 3-0 when we were 1-0 up and we are still creating chances immediately afterwards as opposed <laughs> to them kind of roaring back at us Yeah exactly and a lot of the chances that they had were very much pot shots from the edge of the box you know there was nothing 
there was nothing there that would actually show that they were building towards something whereas we could have been and it took a moment of class from Denise O'Sullivan to actually get us that win I mean she didn't even look up before she took the shot but she placed it absolutely perfectly and you see a player like Jessu who maybe didn't have the best game against Finland got player of the match last night you know I've interviewed her before and she's always said that she looks at every performance and she takes every little tiny piece of it and tries to make it better and you could see the parts of her game that she made better last night from the last week and knowing that we have that sort of younger talent coming up I w- I suppose I would just like to see us play a little bit more positive especially in those sort of games I understand completely why we need to go a bit more defensive when we are on the back foot but I just think those are the games where we could build a bit more confidence and actually show the world like look okay that we have a few more strings to our bow yeah so the question is like how how under instruction is the style of play at the moment and how much of it is the evolution and you hope that they're trending towards being a team who can control those games when they're playing against definitely inferior opposition and even teams who are not really inferior but who might be our equal but who actually like the other night when uh, you know that was a team who technically at the start of the group should be beating us and then we've obviously evolved we're getting better our players are getting stronger um, we're more likely to be able to control those games if we can keep the ball for a while Absolutely and I don't think we should be afraid of that either I mean we've always said with this Irish team that I think they like going into games as underdogs and we had kind of shrugged that off a little bit during this qualification period but it felt like it was creeping back in especially in the last two games and we weren't all that comfortable with the fact that a lot of people were saying we could put three or four goals past Um, especially because we've always said that you know we need more places than goals coming from than just Katie or Denise or a Louise Quinn header at the dying moments of the game and we do have that now and we need to let ourselves actually believe that and let ourselves play with it and I think it is an evolution and like you can definitely see it Um, since the Euros qualification I mean we've come on leaps and bounds we wouldn't have won that game last night we definitely wouldn't have won against Finland a year, year and a half ago and we are winning those games now and if we have to win them dirty I'm not going to complain so long as there's three points at the end of the day but it would just be it would be nice to see the team not even believe in themselves because I know they do believe in themselves but believe in their style of play and believe that they're worth a bit more than just the complete defence the other thing to take into account was that there was significant changes and uh, injury and suspension obviously had Basically, taking four players out of the starting lineup last night, so maybe that's another reason for the disjointedness. It's just that there's kind of a pattern evolving where that disjointedness hasn't been fixed. Now, look, uh, who knows? Maybe uh, by the time the World Cup rolls around, we'll be all singing, all dancing. The uh, the teams who have got the bye to round two for the playoff and the draw on Friday: Switzerland, Iceland, and Ireland. In round one, it's Austria, Belgium, Scotland, Portugal, Wales, and Bosnia Herzegovina. Are any of those teams? teams we should be significantly worried about I would think your Belgium, Scotland Austria are probably the ones you don't want to meet I mean uh, there's also the other argument that you kind of hope that Switzerland or Iceland meet one of them and then someone just does us a favour and knocks them out and we're happy days away we go Um, but as well someone like Portugal you know during the Euros they were kind of the team that no one expected to do all that well and came at like their their entire team is semi-pro um and they play a really technical style of football, which we haven't really come up against in this qualification period in the same way. You know, you look at teams like Sweden and Finland, physicality, 
being strong on the ball, all that sort of stuff is really important to them. Portugal are one-touch passing, lots of fast play. So it it would be interesting to see how we would actually do up against a team like that. I would hope we would do well, but I actually wouldn't count on it. Can we tell <clears throat> if we're more likely or not to be heading towards the conference playoffs if we win? Um, so it's dependent on who had the best records. So, like, if that, you know, Switzerland, Iceland and us are the teams in, who got the bye... Mm-hmm. Are we much behind Switzerland and Iceland? No, we're in a good position, especially with the fact that we didn't let a lot of goals in. I think we only let four in over the qualification period, which serves us well. Um, I think if we can win our game, we're in a good position. If we can keep a clean sheet, we're in an even better position. But it's just, it's. I think there is still that thing with this Irish team where on their day they can be great. And with it being a one-off game... It's just so hard to know how we're going to turn up and how we're going to play. I hope we're going to do well. I think if I had a preference of any of the teams to face there, it would probably be a Scotland or a Wales because I just think we know their style of play a lot better. You know, the, they were going to know the players a lot better because a lot of them play either in the NWSL where Denise O'Sullivan is or they play in the WSL where most of our players are. Um, so those are the sort of teams I think I would prefer us to come up against. It looks like we're all pre- pretty evenly matched against those teams, judging from the results in the group stages. Uh, we got 17 points in the group. Austria, Belgium, Scotland and Portugal all got 16. Wales got 14 and Bosnia only got 11. So maybe they're the worst team, but it's unlikely that they'll make they'll it to the final. They'll actually get past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Switzerland <coughs> and Iceland are ahead of us as things stand. So if they both win, then they're both going to get automatic qualification. Is that... Yeah. Is it as simple as that? <laughs> I don't... It, it's so complicated because it also comes into play if there's extra time, if there's penalties. It's the most complicated qualification process I think I've ever come across in my life. I think Mary Hannigan had a very good piece on it today where she was talking about we just need to go to Mars and beat Jupiter and then we come back around and we'll be in New Zealand eventually. By the time the World Cup actually comes around, we'll have qualified. <laughs> um, okay. I'm just trying to work this out here. So the six teams in round two will be placed in one bowl with no seeding. Uh, and then three ties and the first team drawn on each tie will be at home on the 11th of October. So the 11th of October is our next game, irrespective of what happens. Yeah. And by that stage, we should have a fair idea of whether or not a victory is... Mm-hmm. Go- more than likely, a victory is only going to get us into the confederation, inter-confederation thing. Um, yes, unless one of the other two Kippy. lose. Yeah. yeah, And we'll find out on Friday with the draw which way that's going to go or how likely it's going to be. I mean, Switzerland and Iceland, there's as much as I think we would lose to some of those teams, I think they were perfectly capable of losing to them as well. Teams like Austria, you know, 2-0 loss to England, European Championship. Yeah, pretty you good. Know, that's yeah. pretty good, considering the sort of scores that England have been racking up. Yeah, Austria, the highest scoring team left in us. They scored 34 goals across the uh, qualifying campaign with a massive goal difference, so they are definitely one of those teams you want to avoid. Probably the best of the rest. So that's what the scenario is. We'll know much more on Friday. If you're a Celtic fan, we'd like to hear from you this morning. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. If you're a Liverpool fan, worried about going to Naples this evening, again, we'd like to hear from you. Or if you're a Chelsea fan, what do you make of the Thomas Tuchel meltdown, which apparently seems to be in full flow at the moment? It's 7.41. Let's hear from some of the people involved last night. Uh, here is Vera Pau first talking to Ashing O'Reilly in the aftermath of the game. Enjoy. Vera, congratulations. How are you feeling after that? Yeah, brilliant, of course. It was, a, it was not the best game, 
Um, it was actually quite an ugly game um, from spectator's point of view, but I think that the whole of Ireland doesn't really care. No. <laughs> Do you care? I don't care. The three points I said at halftime, uh, this kind of games, it's about one, well, I've said that before, it's about one or two moments. And um, that's actually what happened. It's one moment defensively and one real moment of, in attack. And that is what it is. I thought that Ireland controlled the game. They had many chances. You know, it could have been 3 0 here tonight. It could have been even more. You know, the, yes, we got that. It was a brilliant goal. It was a brilliant finish by Denise, but we could have had more here tonight. Yeah, exactly. We, we should have scored more, and, and that is something that could uh, cost us in the, in the end. Um, but we always score. And we have now four clean sheets in a row. Uh, and that is um, that's unbelievable concerning the, the opponents that we've been playing. And just overall as a campaign, to be in the position you're in at the minute, to, to get a buy into the playoffs, you know, it's a great place to be in. Yeah, exactly. We start to, as you say, we start to control games. Um, we did not really give um, anything away. There was just one corner that was dangerous, but nothing more than that. And um, there was not, not a moment that you think, oof, and that went okay. Yeah. So we were completely in control, even though it was a fight and there were nasty moments. And um, But I think that we've grown so much, we're so mature to then get the win over the line. And just to speak a little bit about the game, Katie McCabe, she got a lot of attention out there. She was formed each and every time that she got the ball. There was some questionable decisions, I think, by the referee. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to blame the referee. Referee always want to do well, but I, I think they were not really experienced and I think that that cost them. And she done really well. Uh, she she was frustrated at times, but she kept pushing on. I thought she did so well to control the ball and get away from the players each and every time. Yeah, you could see that uh, Katie is special and that she's gaining uh, really experience. But uh, to be honest, I had to calm her down a few times because <laughs> you don't. Yeah, because you don't you don't buy anything of that. If you if you are getting the the one that are the one that's getting the red card. So, uh, um, but she did really well to keep her calm. And overall, what were you most happy about tonight that the girls did? That you um, are able after Thursday night to put such a fighting spirit and such a a momentum into this game again. Um, I've not seen a team doing that after such an explosion of emotions being ready again a few days later. Um, And that shows that the fantastic work from the whole group. My backroom staff has worked tirelessly. We've controlled the, the, um, uh, the lead up to this game because those players have just such a such a drive to get to make that step forward and uh, we've broken through a ceiling now it's just unbelievable yeah you seem really proud you're are you really enjoying the journey you're on at the minute yeah of course but this with these tigers who would not enjoy it (laughs) and also to mention jesse as well she picked up the player of the match Uh, i thought she was brilliant out there tonight um yeah yeah you can uh uh, well, you can give it to any player, of yeah. course. Yeah, um, yeah um, but she was special. Yeah. yeah, reminder, of course, she's still only 20. Uh, one of the elder statesmen of the team, obviously, is Katie McCabe. Here she is talking with Ashing in the aftermath of the game. Enjoy. Katie McCabe, congratulations. You got a win out there tonight. And it wasn't easy at times. Uh, they definitely let you know all about it. I thought they were, there was three, four people on you at times, but you always controlled the ball well, got away from players. And yeah, it was brilliant to see. Yeah, look, we knew it was going to be a physical game here tonight. Um, Slovakia showed us what, what they're made of back in Tallaght. Um, 
I don't even know when that was now, to be honest. But yeah, November, the draw. Um, So we knew it was going to be physical. We knew it was going to be difficult, but it was important for us to make sure we keep a clean sheet tonight. And we knew with the quality we have in this team, we'll get where one opportunity at least. And it was up to us to obviously put it away. And thankfully, Denise did with a wonderful finish. Yeah, and to be in the position you're in at the minute, to be going into the playoffs, getting a bye in the first round, it's a pretty special place to be. Yeah, look, this team has worked so hard over the last few years. Um, It's been our goal to, to reach a major tournament and we're ultimately one game away from that now. And yes, we've kind of let the emotions out Thursday night and there's a... There's the relief now of kind of missing that that first round, but it doesn't mean the job is done. We know there's a big, massive game now coming up in a couple of weeks' time, and we'll be ready to to see obviously who we get in the draw. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a cup final, and we we, we we'll do everything we can to win. And out there tonight, it seemed like he played with a lot of freedom. You know, there was maybe a little bit of pressure on Thursday night and from the, the start here tonight, you really played on the front foot and, you know, we're exciting, energetic and, yeah, there was, there was no pressure, it seemed. No, look, obviously, I, I've heard a few things of us being nervous and that on Thursday night. It, it wasn't nerves, obviously. They had a change of coach, they had a bit of a change of tactics and it was just about us kind of adapting to that within the first kind of 20 minutes, half an hour and um, we got in a half-time, sorted that out and, and tonight now, obviously, We've, we had Megan and Harry at either side and we kind of let them go up and apply a bit more pressure, be on the front foot a bit more and that kind of took pressure off the midfield as well for myself, Jess, Denise and Lily to, to kind of push up from there. So, yeah, obviously it helped us. We wanted to be on the front foot. We wanted to start bright and, uh, yeah, ultimately we did that. I thought you and Jess linked up well. She played really well tonight. She, she picked up the player to match. Yeah, I'm so proud of Jess. You know, she's come in a few years ago as a kid. She she was so quiet and she's just, since she's went over to West Ham um, in in and around that professional environment, she's just she's just upped her game another level now. And you can see that on the on the pitch. It was obviously her, Heather and Denise to kind of intricate passes for the goal. And honestly, I'm so proud of her. She deserves that tonight. She was absolutely immense. Even dropping back into right, uh, right wing back as well. She was, yeah, brilliant and... And as I said, I'm so proud of her. So where, how exactly did they all play together? What was the formation? Because we've talked endlessly about Katie McCabe's position in the Ireland team. She seems to have been pushed forward in this. Yeah, she was pushed forward in that. So she went with the three centre-backs, a very classic, and then four in the middle. And then the De- Denise was kind of leading the line there. And then it was Katie, Heather and Jess up top. OK, right. So that's kind of two midfielders playing up front and uh, trying to get on the ball as much as possible so maybe they're just trying to work that out and that's one of the reasons why we're not good at it yet I I think they are trying to work it out and I think what we saw last night was they actually are on the cusp of I think a really good relationship there between Jesu, Denise O'Sullivan Heather Payne and Katie I think if we can keep Megan Campbell and Megan Connolly fitting in the squad that's going to do great things because that's going to allow us to play Katie higher up the pitch and allow us to actually keep that partnership going um, but again it's just it's also making sure that the rest of the team is coordinated enough that they're they're confident in putting the balls up there they're confident in trying to play, into midfield. They're trying to play it through yeah. the midfield which we can do completely 7.48 this morning if you've got something you want to say about the uh, Ireland team we'd love to hear from you 0879 is the WhatsApp number We'll come back to this a little bit later on with Emma Byrne. But we're turning our attention to Real Madrid's 3-0 win at Parkhead last night. I'm delighted to say we're joined for the very first time in the show by Mark Wilson. Mark, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Good morning. All good. Thanks for having me. Very nearly uh, one of the all-time classic Celtic Park moments in that first half when the ball cannons off the upright and Ange is already celebrating and it's like, oh, balls. So uh, 
before that, let's talk about the good stuff before the goals start going in. <laughs> what was the night like? What was the actual experience like? And, and um, how well do you think Celtic were playing at that stage? Well, it was an incredible uh, evening at Celtic Park. I mean, one that's been missed for so long now. I mean, five years since Celtic have been at that stage. And I don't think they could have asked for a better draw when you get the European champions come to town. I think the big interest probably about the game was how Celtic would approach it. Ange Postecoglou said that his team would attack and they wouldn't change. Now, it's one thing saying that in a press conference, but another thing actually carrying it out on the night. And I thought that was the most impressive thing about that Celtic performance last night. For 45 minutes, they went toe-to-toe with the European champions, with all their world superstars in the team. And in my opinion, Celtic were actually the better team for 45 minutes. They, they should have been ahead. They had the most clear-cut chances, a couple from Abada. You had Cal McGregor shot off the post. Another few efforts at goal from Hatate. And you thought at that period that Celtic really had to score. I always felt that, that Celtic had to score first. Because if you let these big European superpowers back into the game, they will punish you. And that proved to be the case. Uh, and when the first goal went in, you could kind of see the Celtic players getting a bit deflated, setting goal kills it. But what a, a tremendous experience it was for the players and, and the fans who have missed it so much. That bit that you, you made the point about um, Ange's team doing what he said he would do, like that's that must be uh, a moment of significant pride for the Celtic fans in particular. In that they didn't they didn't shut up shop, they didn't put eleven men behind the ball and try and get a scratchy nil all. That's like you know people aren't really going to remember because this he's saying that he wants this team to be a team who can compete at this level, and you can't do that by. Uh, at having no style you have to have a, a belief in a system that everybody buys into and says okay this is who we are and we're going to die on our shields unless you're very pragmatic and you draw your way uh, through the six games and, and nobody nobody cares about it so I, I don't know like in those terms I think the Celtic fans probably very disappointed with the result but must be very proud in the performance well you're right I mean I was uh, I was on the, the phone and show last night after the game uh, here in Glasgow uh, and we didn't have one call from a Celtic fan saying that they were disappointed every Celtic fan came on that show and was proud of how the way the team played I think that's Ange Postecoglou's greatest strength from day day one when he walked in the door and people people, let's be honest not a lot of people knew who he was but he said they wanted to play a certain way a certain style attacking football that got people off their seats and he, he, he's achieved that domestically now it's a different case when you go up a against this level of opposition and we've seen it being picked apart in last season's Europa League and last season, season's Conference League which was disappointing but they've got better at the system and they're progressively getting better now going up against the European champions look I liked what Ange Postecoglou said in his press conference and, and I said live on air last night that I thought they might need to be a wee bit more pragmatic they might need to get bodies behind the ball to stifle Real Madrid at times but I was wrong because they, they took the game to him and Real Madrid almost looked like they didn't know what had happened for that period in the first half. And if you're a Celtic fan, it's great watching that. I mean, Scottish football, we're a small league with small budgets in comparison to these superpowers. So to, to sit in on your 18-yard line and just hope that you'll manage to scrape a draw certainly isn't this Celtic manager's style. It may work sometimes, but he doesn't want his team to play like that. He wants his team to learn, which I think the fans buy into. I, I think they, they go there to Celtic Park, knowing what they're getting, 
And I think they would have been disappointed if his team sat in last night. And I even was 1-0 Real Madrid. I think the Celtic fans are at a stage now. They're enjoying their creative players having the freedom to go and express themselves. And if they get beat 3-0, well, so be it. They, they may learn next time and may get a better outcome next time. But one thing you will say about this team, it's exciting to watch at either end, in either box. It's brilliant to watch. That's the other thing, right? You, you know, so they could have had a pragmatic nil-all draw last night, but what's the long-term benefit to that group of players in terms of learning what the quality of opposition is like when you're going to try and win and try and be aggressive? And um, that seems to be the thing that has kind of tilted. Uh, I, I maybe if you could you take us back and, and those first few games when Ange arrived. Uh, was was this quality of performance something that Celtic fans were dreaming of, or was there a little bit of like what what is what are we trying to do here? Because it, it's obviously a significant departure, um, you know, in terms of name, in terms of recognition. When he walked through the door, from there to here, it's been quite the journey. What what's your recollection of how the, he was responded to at the start? Well, when they came in, like you said before, no, not many people knew their, knew who he was. I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't actually know who he was. I was asked to do a, a television piece here uh, in Glasgow. I actually had to Google his name to see his history, how to pronounce it. There's there's one for you because you don't want to pronounce it wrong. So that shows you where, where the kind of guy was when he came here. Even his style when he came in. Now, he's a very good communicator in the media. Celtic fans bought into that straight away. But when they saw the first few performances I think there was an aspect of what we're trying to get out of this team or did did we have the personnel to play that way I mean, probably not now it took a wee bit of time you know Ange dipped into the, the Japanese market he brought in Starfelt as well right at the beginning they went to Tynecastle if you remember it was an incredibly poor performance they were undone I don't know if there was much panic but I, I think the sport was dis- divided at that point and thinking uh, we can see the identity but there has to be results I don't think Ange Postacoglu ever shied away from that I always thought he knew what the club was what it stood for and what you needed to achieve in terms of results so it's okay playing attractive football and it's brilliant to watch ultimately if you get undone then you'll be out of job within a year now he started getting things right his recruitment was spot on in fact I'm trying to think of some negatives in his recruitment I, I can't really think of any it's bringing in the top of my head everybody has chipped in he strengthened it again in January and you could quickly see that the team was was mirroring the manager's thoughts you know mirroring him as a man in terms of what he wants on the field the energy and the pace that the player was just overwhelming for teams to, to keep up with and that was that was a team just put together now with a full pre-season under the belt it's got better domestically I mean, they look unstoppable just now. They've already had a 9-0 away at Dundee United. Um, 4-0 against Rangers at Saturday. That could have been really anything that the team wanted. So this is the next level. Uh, for Ange Postacoglu as a coach, this is the next level to test his philosophy against the greats. And look, for 45 minutes, it was, it was brilliant last night. And they did match them. But at this level, in both boxes, is, is where it really matters. And your Real Madrid's of this world will show you that they are clinical where Celtic weren't and that's where they were you know Abada take for instance Abada 20 year old um, had a golden opportunity uh, the very first few moments maybe somebody with more experience may have taken that in slotted it away and it was a totally different game so it's still a work in progress but 
as, as I keep saying, it is magnificent for the Celtic fans to watch. It's funny, the, the first minute, so obviously the, the McGregor off the post is, is like a beautiful sweeping movement that would have been one, one of the all-time great Celtic European goals. But the first minute of both halves, they actually had great chances. That that clinical nature that you're talking about, Vinicius Jr. had it. In fairness, Eden Hazard did miss a sitter in the first half. Maybe not a sitter, but certainly um, you know he looked rusty before actually really uh, coming into the game in the second half but the difference between Vinicius Junior and his one chance back at the net <clears throat> you know which you might expect from one of the best players in the world uh, like you hope that the team learns from that experience I, 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 you, you've played in games like this like do you automatically absorb the lessons and go well that's the standard we need to get to or does that depend on the culture of the team well of course you try and learn as best you can the, the <laughs> The problem is, um, I mean, you can only learn to a certain extent. You know, quality often overtakes that when you get to these finer moments. I mean, Vinicius Junior, I mean, what did they sign for? Something like 40 million when he was 16 years old or something like that. So the quality is there. Very difficult to keep up. Um, uh, but I, I suppose the lessons you learn is in terms of Ange Postecoglou's team last night was when to press, when not to switch off. You think about it for for. You know, when was that first goal? 50-odd minutes. Celtic were so switched on, so up against their men. Now, from that 20 seconds, where the ball went to Courtois, out to the out to the right back, moved around the corner, at 20 seconds, they, they were at the other end of the pitch, just because Celtic weren't tight enough for those few settings. And that's the difference at this level. Domestically, you know, you're never going to get undone like that. Never, because it was such a good goal. And then you take the other, the other goals into consideration also the way that Madrid kept the ball moved it was patient and then the finish it's those bits of quality what it does teach you and I think Ange Postecoglou alluded to this last night was when you get your chances when you're on top against these European superpowers you need to take one of them at least one of them and when you look at the chances that Celtic had in that first period Abada after about a minute where's your Kamakis lays it off to him Abada again after was that seven or eight minutes um, McGregor, you need that wee bit of luck because it's a terrific strike. And Maeda, you know, at the time I thought it was a difficult chance. When I see it in slow motion, I think it's a really good chance that he kind of snatched it. If that's at the other end, if that's a Benzema or a Hazard, you can bet that they're putting that in the back of the net. So that's the lessons you take. Scoring at the right time is huge in these occasions. And we all weathered the storm. And when they got their first clear cut chance, really, they put it away. And that's the difference. The the group is a, a, a tough group, but uh, you know last night's other result in it um, with Leipzig being hammered at home by Shakhtar Donetsk. I'm not sure we all expected that to happen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it certainly means it looks like everybody's going to take points off each other. So it's not a it's not a disaster by any means. Having said that, I think that maybe if, if Celtic fans were plotting a, a path out of the group then points against Donetsk were were definitely on the cards so maybe need to re- revisit that what's the sense now about what success is going to look like from this this group is it uh, qualification for the next stage is it qualification for a different tournament is it still being in Europe at the end well I think I, I think Celtic and Ange Boscoglu probably still think that they can finish second in this group I don't think much has changed since last night I think everybody realised the, the task of last night in Real Madrid and it'll be the same the second leg in the Bernabeu. It's the games in between. I always found out when, when I played at this level that you had your big hitter and you, you assessed the other two sides. And look, my teams, I would argue that the teams I played in, we got to the last 16 twice, probably weren't as good as this Ange Postecoglou side. They certainly weren't as exciting as this Postecoglou side 
but we we knew where to take points and we were successful at taking points against the other teams. I think you look at Shakhtar Donetsk, everybody thought that they would be the easiest tie, but of course the result last night throws that up in the air. Look, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, the one thing the Celtic players can't do uh, is think that Shakhtar Donetsk and Leipzig coming to Celtic Park, it's going to be an easy game. Yes, they won't be as good as Real Madrid, but at this level, they're all going to be tough. I, th- I do think it's important that they take something on the road as well. That's always been the Achilles heel for Celtic in Europe, in the Champions League. Even back in my day, we never won away from home. So it's a big, uh, it's a big ask, but still possible to be second in the group. Last question for you then. The, the only other thing that they need to get used to is the emotional intensity of last night, uh, league game at the weekend, go again to a, a trip, uh, Poland next week, and then back again. So that grind, do they have enough of a squad at the moment to be able to deal with that, do you think? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, they've got they've got stacks of players. Um, even when you look at the stand last night at Celtic Park, the quality, um, I, I, look, domestically, it shouldn't be a problem. You're, you're right about emotionally. You think of this week and what that would have taken out the Celtic players' legs from Saturday to Tuesday. Two huge occasions. Then you come back down to earth with a game at home against Livy. Well, Kanj Postecoglou only has to look behind him to see the wealth of uh, talent that he's got. I think he will rotate it on Saturday. He, he always said that at the start of the season. He was going to have his horses for courses uh, and he'll pick a probably different lineup and they have to go again next week. Incredibly busy period, but see when you're a player, there's no nowhere else you'd rather be than in the Champions League and sitting at the top of the table domestically. Mark, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. That's uh, Mark Wilson there from uh, Super Scoreboard, the legendary radio show on Radio Clyde, and of course, uh, former Celtic footballer as well. If you want to get in touch this morning, 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number, and OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. <clears throat> that is the big challenge though isn't it like Livingston is a little bit after the Lord Mayor show when it comes to um, well we were just playing Real Madrid now it's Livingston <laughs> I know it's not really comparable in any way and I think I mean it's interesting I would be interested to know how long Celtic fans think they can hold on to and just like Mark was saying there no one really knew him when he was coming over obviously playing in Scotland not a lot of people are going to be watching Celtic in Livingston but now he's done something quite remarkable on a European stage so it'll be interesting to see can they keep a hold of him or will he go on to different things in the next while I mean like that first half performance was insane I didn't really know what I was watching I didn't expect it at all I know I joked beforehand because Ashley O'Reilly had said that they were going to win 2-1 and I was actually thinking God she got the Ireland result right and she's going to get this one right as well from the way they were playing but it was just unfortunate that they didn't have that little bit of finishing power or even just a little bit of luck with some of those shots. You know, a few of them, the way they, it was just the underside of the bar that got them or it was just inches wide. And you'd love to see them do it. I mean, the atmosphere last night was absolutely insane. Yeah, so two more home games from still to come and still the opportunity. I, the Donetsk's actually hammering Leipzig in Leipzig. Mm. I don't think anybody really expected that. So I don't know what that means for the rest of the tournament. Does that mean Leipzig are going to be no good for the rest of it? Or does that mean... Leipzig are one of those teams that are quite... You always feel like they're in transition or something. It's very hard. They'll have one very standout player. They'll end up getting signed to the Premier League or one of the, like even one of the other bigger leagues and... Leipzig falter for a while and then they kind of come back and everyone thinks they're going to do something and then they don't so obviously that no one expected them to lose as well as they did to Shakhtar but I think it's as much uh, condemnation of where Leipzig are at as it is uh, 
Shakhtar might or may not go on a run for the rest of the Champions League <laughs> well yeah we'll, we'll know a good bit more next week when Celtic are in um, Shakhtar so uh, just a reminder the Premier League is back it's competition time we've teamed up with one of Europe's largest sports events ticketing and hospitality companies Champions Travel to give you the opportunity to win a 250 euro Champions Travel voucher every day this week these can be used on Premier League match trips as well as on a host of other sporting events daily winners will also be entered into our grand prize draw where one lucky winner or win a trip from a selection of Premier League games with flights and two nights accommodation included. Tenter, just tell us who this man is telling us what quote he has tattooed on his back. Well, Joe Bradley, what do you think of that? You can uh, tweet us your guess on our main Twitter account, which is at Off The Ball, and we'll play it again one more. Well, Joe Bradley, what do you think of that? <clears throat> it's not a Shane Hallen from yesterday, it's is not, it? It's not. <laughs> uh, Bradley was delighted with that, of course. <laughs> a reminder, OTBA brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We should tell you that uh, Nick Kyrgios is out of the tennis. Coco Goff is out of the tennis. So everything we were talking about yesterday with Jenny Claffey, <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, not... All gone. Yeah. Um, Kyrgios beating in five sets. Went a bit... Went a went bit. Went a bit, Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. It was... It's disappointing to see, like, I covered Wimbledon for two weeks last year and I actually really enjoyed watching him play because it was the right side of entertaining you know he was messing with the crowd he was chatting he was not being the normal sort of Wimbledon decor that you would expect but like smashing two rackets after losing I know it was his best chance to win a grand slam but it just seems so Unnecessary, and the fact that he went back for the second racket as well—he wasn't happy enough with the first one. Once he'd smashed it five times, um, it's disappointing. But it does leave the rest of it quite open. And I know we said yesterday that we thought Coco Golf might go on a golden run, but I think Jenny Claffey also said that Caroline Garcia, if she managed to get past Golf, had a very good chance going through the rest of the tournament. And you've Onstrover as well, who won yesterday, who's been quite quiet and hasn't had all that much buzz around her in this tournament after all the buzz that was around her in Wimbledon so it's set up very well there was a great shot from Rude earlier in the day as well when he beat Berrettini through his legs which is quite quite good to watch I saw the video going around on Twitter 616476 <laughs> Rude beat Berrettini so just handled him handled his yeah. business and has been handling his business largely through the tournament and may now be the favourite I think so. Um, well, sorry, Alcaraz obviously is a higher seed and was like amazing think, on hard court all season up until Wimbledon, and then yeah, I mean Alcaraz is a great one to watch as well. But I think it was the way in which Rude got rid of Berrettini. It was just so clinical, and he seemed to have his game plan down completely. I mean, I'd love that as a final. I think it would be great. Yeah, so worth getting your uh, free week of Amazon Prime. Or maybe you want to wait until the football and, uh, and uh, I don't know, when is the first round of Amazon? It must be fairly soon. Um, a reminder to the uh, Gaelic Football All-Stars uh, out at midnight last night. And as you'd expect, it's like 12 carry, um, second at Galway. Third are actually Derry, who have more than more nominations than Dublin, I think. And the Footballer of the Year nominees are Killian McDade, Shane Walsh, and probably the winner, David Clifford. They're the three nominees. They said, Killian McDade has a good case. Like, does. I, like, people keep saying David Clifford is a shoe it and I know why, but I would actually love one of the other two to win it. I think David Clifford has got a lot of his plaudits and will get a lot more of his plaudits, but the other two were just so impressive during the whole season. Um, like, <clears throat> the debate about footballer of the year is like if you are the best player in the two biggest games of the year they should count triple 
or mm. the, oh, certainly the All-Ireland final counts triple when it comes to that's the case on the football pod and I tend to agree with it when it comes to making the All-Star team because they're the biggest games and it's very difficult to measure so Clifford say kicks 15 points in a Munster Championship match or uh, somebody holds one of the best forward scoreless in an Ulster football dog pit like these two performances are not the same yeah how do you measure them against each other almost impossible uh, but Kitty McDade was good the whole year Clifford obviously got injured in Sigerson, played bits and pieces in the league and um, you know was feeling his hamstring was feeling his hamstring it felt all the way up until like the semi-final and then was absolutely sensational in the final and so therefore you know I still, I still think Shane Walsh was one of the match in the other final uh, well he was my tip at the time I was quite annoyed <laughs> like I, I just don't know I I love watching David Clifford play but I do think that because of that inconsistency throughout the season and I know you should count those bigger games for more but consistency as well like it's hard to do it on the day but it's even harder to do it over an entire year and I think for me and I'm going to go against maybe you and the football pod in this I think doing it over an entire season is a bit more important than in the final so you're about Killian McDade <laughs> yeah okay alright 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number if you want to get in touch this morning we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today I'm delighted to say Graham Hunter is with us Graham, good morning to you how are you getting on yeah Graham thanks very much yeah the um Let's start with Real Madrid and uh, the way they handled their business. We've just done 15 minutes with Mark Wilson, the, the former Celtic footballer, and he was like uh, on the phone-in show and um, Radio Clyde last night. The Celtic fans were all pretty happy with the quality of their performance. I can completely understand why. I'd say Real Madrid are even happier with the fact that they watched Celtic be a dervish for 15 minutes and then were like, oh, game over. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, it, it, I suppose for brevity, you have to say it like that. I think it was more complicated, and I, and I think it's a really healthy test for Madrid in, in several ways. I don't, I've watched them now for nearly 30 years in a professional sense, 20 years living in the country, and it's, it's quite rare that they face a team playing that way. So clearly... For Celtic fans in Scotland or in Ireland, where you are right now, the, the sense of measuring themselves up for an hour, um, the way in which Celtic were both intense but not foolish with the ball, the fact that they could could easily have gone one nil up, the idea that the the world is now reverberating to, again to the magnificence of that atmosphere. All these things are positive for Celtic, but. There are very few teams um, make it as intense for Real Madrid to press them so daringly, harass them, and then play you know pretty good football when they get possession themselves. And for Madrid to be tested in that manner, I, I think is is terrifically healthy, particularly without Benzema. Benzema's impact in the game when he was on the pitch was minor, and. Although it's not the case that they never win without Benzema, they've become reliant on him in situations like last night at Parkhead, where either his will to win or his his remarkable ability to invent clever movements or goals digs them out of a trench time and time again, not just last season against Chelsea, against Manchester City. So for them to, to win... Uh, I, I don't think it was like, hey, all oh, the storm's gone with one now. I, I think that the, the quality of the goals that Real Madrid produced were really excellent. And apart from the way in which 
like for example, the contrast for me in the first half when there were. Do you remember all those pictures? Um, Kathleen, you and I haven't spoken very much, but Jer, you and I have during the World Cup in 2010 or the Euros in 2012, where there were brilliant pictures of six or seven players surrounding Iniesta and trying to take the ball off him. Well, it didn't quite get to that proportion, but there was often two, three or four men encircling Vinicius in the first half from Celtic. And and yet there never seemed to be a gap anywhere else, which is arithmetically and geometrically impossible, but Celtic pulled it off. So so to contrast that with, and I was writing on the match, and, and I suggested during that um, period, how will they continue to do this? So to see Duranovic on his own when Valverde squares the ball in an almost exact replica of the goal at San Denis that, that won the European Cup against Liverpool uh, last May, that suggested that it, it was impossible to be as fantastically intense in defending um, a Celtic manager in the first half. Other than that, the goals were really clever, including you know Valverde's flick to, to, to play the one-two and then get the cross in was also extremely good. So Madrid were forced to produce extremely intelligent, technically admirable goals in order to win. And what's more, I don't know what you two or your listeners thought when Hazard came on, but I, I managed to see a full training session for Real Madrid in Helsinki, which we don't get to do. We get the 15 minutes exposure to warm up and stretching and you know jokes about, you know, who was last in the team. But in Helsinki, we saw the full Buna and Hazard looked excellent. He looked sharp, quick to turn, playing a little one-twos, finishing well. And yet, it's until last night, he hadn't made any impact on the season. When he comes on last night in, in what was a frenzy, your immediate question is, well, why is that, for example, not Mariano? Um, were there other ways in which you could reinforce the midfield, say, let's bring on... Camavinga and put Vinicius at centre forward instead of Vinicius. No. Ancelotti goes for Hazard. Post-match, Ancelotti explained it, which is also a great benefit to us because he tells the truth and he, he opens up. He said it was the perfect match for us because despite the, the pace of the game, perfect match for Hazard, excuse me, Chair, because the, t- the two Celtic centre-halves didn't come forward to press and therefore we knew that there'd be little bits of space for him. And as soon as he caught the match tempo, he'd be... And of course, he influenced very heavily the the second goal. And I, I think that um, looking at things like that in the context of beyond the Champions League, whereby in the first match of this season, David Ancelotti begged his dad, put on Alaba now and tell Alaba to tell Cross and Benzema they're not taking the free kick against Almeria. Ancelotti Senior agreed. On came Alaba. He told Cruz and Benzema to vacate the premises and leave the kick to him. Immediate goal, first touch of the ball, 2-1 win um, against Espanyol uh, the week before last. He brings on um, Rodrigo as a sub who crosses for Benzema to make it 2-1 and effectively win the game. At the weekend, um, he made changes whereby... Valverde comes on and immediately crosses for Rodrigo for the 2-1 goal to win the game. Last night, Hazard's brought on in a situation where a lot of people would have thought this game's too fast for him and he seriously influences it. So the, the Ancelotti legend, rather handsome, grows. Okay, that's interesting, because, uh, you know, in football, there's been many cases of nepotism just being the thing that gets the, the idiot's yeah. child a job multiple times, international caps, what have you? You're saying this one, this one's different. 
Are you mentioning the fact that my dad's worked for off the ball for for years? Now? Sixty years. When the, <laughs> the idiot son comes in. Look, David Ancelotti's reputation, um, I, I think, has thrived at Napoli at Bayern Munich. Whether he was at Everton long enough for for people to have appreciated him properly, there is something that I don't know enough about. But I do know about the way in which he was viewed when he began at Real Madrid the first time with Carlo Ancelotti, and how he's developed himself first in his class in his UEFA B license, first in his class in his UEFA A license. Somebody who has been able to become, in communicative terms, a bridge between dressing rooms and the coach, which isn't always the case with assistants, let alone the son of the manager. But the respect factor is very high because, like his father, he's intuitive about how to manage elite footballers, something he learned through experience from his dad and being around squads rather than from playing in elite football like Carlo did for Roma and AC Milan. And his analytical work in order to prepare defensive and offensive set plays has time and again convinced footballers at the clubs where he works, this guy knows his stuff. So his, his surname, apart from those who continue to meet him for the first time maybe and they, they have to learn, his surname has become irrelevant for those who work with him because I, I wouldn't tout, I wouldn't try to say he, in his own right he's going to go on and be as successful a coach as his father because that's an unknown, that's an unmeasurable while he remains an assistant. But in his current role, it's round peg, round hole. Okay, fair enough. Um the the point about Hazard, he, he did look like it was peak Hazard for the run for the build-up to the second goal, uh, where there's like two tackles that are flying in around him and he just glides around them. Like, is he, is he, is he back fully and just in time for a World Cup? I think, Ger, the, the, the point to make for those who are cynical is that, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Um, one of the things I'd pick up on, too, is that when Chomeni wins the, the 50-50 tackle in midfield again, Winning 50-50 tackles in midfield is not necessarily a staple of, of Real Madrid. And one wondered without Casemiro how quickly they'd get on that bandwagon again. They did. Hazard's mental speed to see with the way the ball was going to break before he skipped off and, and set up Modric's goal, I think, again, was a guy who was you know focused, who was intense, whose his brain was working sharp. Which, however good a player you are, if you haven't played... Um, first-class football for months and months and months. It, it can be rusted and eroded. So the things to say would be that although he arrived overweight and when he first signed, and that was his fault, he's twice got himself in extremely good condition, was playing against Paris Saint-Germain and influencing the game very much under Zidane when Meunier stamped on his his ankle. It was untouched by the referee, which was a shocker. He's then had a couple of operations on an ankle. And just when he was getting to peak Last year, he needed a, a, a reopening of that wound and a resetting of the the, the recuperative work done, and, and therefore it, it's been hard for him to be. It's it's not been Eden Hazard's fault in recent seasons compared to how he began a little bit lackadaisically and turning up, having you know spent the summer on, on beer and crisps. So the fault hasn't been his. Ancelotti is somebody not proning, prone to giving us bull. He, he's got a remarkable record for answering questions, honestly, which football managers aren't always contracted to do. And he's been telling us for a while, I'm glad Hazard is staying. He wasn't for sale. I think he'll have an important role this season. His training has been excellent. And when Courtois spoke last night at Parkhead, he said, 
um, as I've been training at a phenomenal level, he's ready to contribute. I don't think anybody's claiming that he'll be, you know, starting in 70%, 75% of the games this season, but it's a very long season. He's got his mind focused on the World Cup. I was interviewing Roberto Martinez two months ago now, and he spoke at length about how he's been monitoring Hazard's mental state, his training. He's had very close communications with Real Madrid. And Roberto Martinez was extremely excited about the role that Hazard, in theory, will be able to play, injuries from now on permitting, in Qatar. So for those who enjoy watching him, because he, he can be magical, we're not going to get vintage Hazard back, because age and time have taken that away from him. But somebody who can consistently turn games for club and country, I think that's where he's at right now, yes. We'd take that for sure. We were chatting a little bit earlier on about um, the the impact of Postacoglu and uh, that performance happening on the stage that had happened last night where the European Champions' first game is is at Parkhead. So, you know, all of Europe is watching. You you travel Europe, you talk to football people. What's the perception of, of Postacoglu and how much longer does he need to do this before people start going, ooh, I really want him to be the leader of whatever project in whatever country that might be. How worried should Celtic fans be? Look, I think that ripple effect, ripple, you know, pebble in the pond effect that you're talking about, apart from the absolute consenty of football, uh, football directors, directors of football, is a better way to say it, sorry. I think that Postacoglu is still somebody whose um, ideas and reputation um, have yet to make a big, big splash in terms of the football media across continental Europe. But from last night, I think that will change. And you you want to watch because I can tell you that when I was recently with an executive at Manchester City and I was talking about where Pep Guardiola might go next, and I don't mean at the end of the season because I don't think anybody really knows what he'll choose to do. I was offering up a couple of ideas about where the next candidate might come from. And this City executive interrupted me and said, Yo, don't forget Postacoglu. Not necessarily next man in the door, but he's been part of our organisation. We know his ideas, and therefore, gradually, he'll be listed as somebody to be, at, at minimum, in consideration. So that's not me saying Ange Postacoglu is, is next manager in after Pep Guardiola. Not at all. But you asked about how have his um, teachings, his personality, the brand of football Celtic, is playing, how have they begun to make a name for him, send ripples across the pond? I think that will be to a degree augmented by last night because those who plan and those who look at um, succession don't stop at the result. They look at trends, they look at ideas, they look at consistency, they look at robustness, and they look at fit with what they've got already. So my opinion is that you're right to say that sooner rather than later, those clubs who like Ange Postacoglu's uh, personality, ideas, philosophy, the brand of football his, his, his um, players put into practice, some clubs who are sharp will think, well, we'd really like to get him before Manchester City are ready for him, um, whether that be next in after Pep or next one after that, whichever it may be. So I think that there'll be a market for him, um, at least in consideration when big clubs start to scratch their head. Maybe, maybe not during this season, but it would surprise me if, if, there's, a, if there's a vacancy in a progressive, successful continental club 
maybe even England next summer, and Ange Postecoglou's name doesn't get on the table for serious consideration. Right, that's that's uh, Celtic fans' worst nightmare. It's like, oh, we've discovered a genius, and then it's like the rest of the world discovers him too, and they're you know. But here's the thing: if if City are already uh, thinking and talking about him, maybe a couple of years in the in the Premier in the Champions League with Celtic would actually be more beneficial to him to get the super gig as opposed to taking a mid-tier Premier League team with all of the the vagaries of the ownership that we know, like a, an Everton or a Villa or a Leicester or any of those teams, which hasn't always been a successful route for. Uh, former recent old firm managers. Can I ask you about the the, the Chelsea? I hear, I hear your I hear your pain, chair. I hear your pain. Can I ask about the Chelsea situation? Um, uh, people, yes. People talk about the the Tuchel, um, the the epidemiology of the Tuchel meltdown that happens at some stage, and it, it generally there's, there's been recoveries. He's, he's clearly an excellent excellent coach and, and manager, and really understands football at a very deep level. I'm just wondering about his emotional intelligence, maybe to be able to knit together the squads that he has. Um, uh, I managed to catch the first 15 minutes of the game, uh, a double screening with the, the Ireland game on at the same time. They looked amazing for 15 minutes. like, uh, And then conceded one of the best breakaway goals you're going to see in world football with a beautiful finish. And that was it. It was game over. It's like, wow, what a, what a souffle they are. Just poke it in the air yeah. pops out. Uh, listen, uh, it, it, there's a big subject here, and I'm not sure it was game over. Uh, Chelsea, I watched that game. Chelsea laid siege uh, to Zagreb's goal for the last 20 minutes, might easily have scored. It was as good a goal as you described. Um, but the, uh, using your own words, where does that pattern of looking sensational, looking like they should score or scoring and then falling apart ring bells for you? If you watched the defeat at Southampton, um, the the body language, the inability to wrestle their way back from an opponent landing a sucker punch, it was almost identical. The personnel were not identical. Um, Tuchel made, I think, some reasonably smart uh, changes and it's it's pretty impactful how Chilwell isn't suffering from some of the malaises that others around Tuchel are because he's been out for so long and he's been a high-impact player since he became fit again. The, the choice to drop Mondi and um, put Kepa on didn't backfire. But from my taste, um, Ziyech is, is a good example. And I think he's a microcosm of, of much that's wrong for Tuchel right now. Ziyech, um, along with hudson Adoy before the Southampton game, before the market closed, was told he could go to Ajax and thought he was going to Ajax. Um, there, there was a little bit of... Uh, Lightening of uh, untightening of the belt on Zayesh's part um, on the weekend part of the Southampton game. Over the next couple of days, the, his training perhaps wasn't elite. And yet, when the move broke down to Ajax, he was straight in the team at Southampton, um, didn't play well, didn't play well last night, wasted a lot of good possession and took free kicks repeatedly, um, which were extremely poor. Now, that's something that a manager can back a talented footballer over and again. And when he comes right, people like us will say, look how clever that manager was to, to, to keep faith in this creative footballer. But when you've got a footballer who was nearly out the door, who just um, lessened his intensity a little bit, to speak euphemistically, uh, and then played repeatedly in a, in a losing team, others around him, hard-nosed players around him will 
be a bit messed with the footballer, but much more so it'll be corrosive about their relationship with the coach. And I think if you look at the the body language last night in Croatia was not so bad. The body language um, from the moment that um, Southampton went ahead just before the break um, in the game before the West Ham win, a West Ham win which really um, shouldn't have been the, the goal uh, that uh, Frederick scores should have stood. They should really be honestly now defeat, draw defeat. And there's a little niggle for the American owners that Tuchel seems so determined not to give Pulisic um, sufficient faith and sufficient starts. I don't know what's wrong uh, between them. They worked together at Dortmund um, before Chelsea. And it should be a productive relationship, but at the moment it isn't. And that doesn't mean that because Pulisic and the owners share nationality, that it should be an automatic choice. That would be wrong. But it's getting up the nose of his employers that Pulisic is, is not a go-to player for solutions in a time when the team is playing badly. So I think Tuchel has has some some difficulties ahead of him. And beyond simply results being better because he has a squad which is still strong and Aubameyang is in good nick, jaw and mask aside. It, beyond the results, there needs to be a better feel between Tuchel and his senior footballers and better performances, better displays, whereby the owners think, yeah, our faith in Tuchel uh, when so many others were cleared out of the club, w- was correctly placed. Right now, in my humble opinion, they have doubts. Graham, with Tuchel, you know, he said last night that he didn't see the result coming, that he was in the wrong movie. And it's kind of hard to look at the results that Chelsea have had over the last while. I think it's like the longest run they've ever gone under him where they've conceded in every game. The first, uh, There was a stat last night that's it's 100 game. The first 50 matches, he only conceded 24. Second 50, they've conceded 53. He almost seems to be putting a lot of that pressure on the players. But is it fair to say that he should be looking at himself, especially at the what you've said there? There always just seems to be an excuse with him as to why the team isn't performing when really they should, especially when you consider what they've done in the transfer window. Uh, Kathleen, that's a neat summary of what I've felt about Tuchel and what I've been trying to say about Tuchel whenever I've been asked on air since he joined. I do believe he's exceptional. I do believe that he's uh, modern, dynamic, He's got an extremely bright mind um, in various languages, an extraordinary lexicon. I think he's a very impressive man. I think and a, a Andreas uh, flaw that runs through his career and, and through him is that, for example, when he's on the touchline and being histrionic and explosive, as we've seen throughout his career, not just in England, and which makes very good television, some of the things that I, I'm told are that substitutes on the bench are listening to him berating his players on the pitch and the terminology he uses and often fall to thinking, well, when I'm on the pitch, is that what he's saying about me too? And again, I, I use the word corrosive because I think that Tuchel's intensity, um, and, and you used the phrase, I think, emotional intelligence, is it, it's, it's pretty unremitting take me or leave me, this is how I am. He doesn't have um, a lot of, what would you call a a different face to put on or a different vocabulary to use when he's heated, when he's angry, when he's disappointed. But then again, you know, I need to be careful about our our profession because after the Southampton game, it felt like he hung the players out to dry because he said, you know, we're too easy to beat. Well, that was a fact. 
and it was a hard assessment. So the debate then is, do you say that in public so that the players feel hung out to dry? Do you say that in public because it will give the players a slap and it will, you know, kickstart them? There, you know, there are times when managers' behaviour and, and and vocabulary we judge very harshly because huge salaries aside, we're not under the same pressure, and it needs to be understood that if we were, then very possibly we'd act in similar ways. But over the piece of his Chelsea career, I think that there has been. Um, a corrosive effect on on the players' absolute trust and liking for him, and when that gets to a corrosive effect on the respect, because they they did and and many still do absolutely respect his talent. When that begins to happen, you get defeats that <clears throat> you don't see coming, or that seem inexplicable. Yeah, Graham, great stuff. Thanks, million for joining us. Cheers. So, Graham, Hunter giving us some thoughts this morning on that. Um, I do. It's interesting that point about the uh, people on the bench wondering: Is he saying that about me? Mm. And then it's also like he's he's abusing those players on the pitch, and I still can't get on. I know, and especially when he was saying there about Pulisic, who he has left on the bench quite a lot. And I know, I mean, working for ESPN for three years, that there is a massive grow there from the American side to get him on the pitch more and to get him playing more, but. They just don't seem to be able to link up, and I don't think like he's able to get the best out of Pulisic either. I don't know if that's even the right place for him to play, um, but I can't imagine if you're listening to that, and then you're also listening to him in the media saying that you know the team's lacking hunger and intensity, and they're they're not good enough all the time. It is unrelenting, and I don't see how that actually benefits a team. I think you need a very specific sort of person for that to actually spur you on. And if you have a squad of 30 players that you're dealing with week in, week out, then you're you're not really going to get the best out of everyone on that team. You need a bit of a mix. Yeah. Now, the one thing is that games are going to come thick and fast, so he's going to have plenty of opportunity to try out whatever it is that he's trying to do with this team, which is in transition, even though they just won the Champions League a couple of seasons ago. So um, he'll have a little bit of time to get it right, but it does sound like, you know, his... Is um, it's not quite on. He's on a bit of a slide at the moment, and I don't know if there is a way back up for him. It's like a couple of wins would would. It would help, him. but and that's not a difficult group in the Champions League, really. No, but also they did just lose to Shakhtar. So. <laughs> um, yeah, to uh, Zagreb. Um, Zagreb, sorry, but. I, like, I still think they're going to qualify from that group. I still yeah. think that in, in the return, it's going to be okay for them. Um, like, I don't know, Salzburg and Milan drew one all. It, this is this is not the... I don't know, maybe no, Milan they definitely are, can get out of the group. And I think if they do, it will help. But also, there, there's a lot there that they need to fix. And if the games are coming thick and fast, and you have Premier League as well... Uh, it just feels like the whole squad is a bit tired and I don't know if they're... They really shouldn't be at this stage of the season. And they really shouldn't be. And there's still a World Cup to come and, you know, there's a lot happening at the moment and he would kind of needs to get a grip on it sooner rather than later because it can get away from him very, very quickly. It's 8.36. If you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment in the YouTube stream. You can tweet us at Off The Ball. A reminder that Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Each week we're giving one lucky viewer a €100 Euro voucher to spend on some Brayburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Brayburn Coffee post and you will be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on-the-go experience on the road. Available at Apple Green today. Virtual Insanity with John Duggan is next.
You have entered our drive. Oh, wow! Right. John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. It's time for Virtual Insanity. It is, Jaron Cassin. How are we doing? 22.3% profit for the year. That's not bad. Got to finish the year in profit, folks. Second year in a row. That is not bad, J.D. So it's the big flagship event of the PGA Tour season in Europe. So the DP World Tour. So the PGA Championship at Wentworth starts tomorrow, 6.40. Renegade villains from Liv are going to be there. Up to 17 of them. Rory McIlroy, Shane Lowry, Graham McDowell, Jonathan Colwell, the Irish Interest, John Ram, Victor Hovland. Going to be a great tournament, great field. Can't wait for the locker room stories that are going to emerge out of this one. Proper bitterness, though, isn't it? It's, yeah, like, it's not, not quiet, not like no. uh, muttered behind. It's like, uh, no, they shouldn't be here. These guys who yeah. wanted to play less golf are now playing more golf, and they're only here to try and get some world ranking points so they can compete in the majors. This is nonsense. We need to know what's going on. Billy Horschel, John Ram coming out yesterday. Uh, publicly criticising these guys as Billy Horschel said the Taylor Gooches of the world that never turn up at this tournament now turning up at it Uh, so it is frosty apparently a letter was sent to them not to turn up Martin Keimer decided not to turn up where he wasn't wanted but some of them have decided no we we feel like we're entitled to play here that's all going to be decided in the courts in February Horschel has called them hypocritical yeah they're not really golf is like they generally are like they're absolute mean Mean girls behind the scenes, yeah. but uh, in person they're all like, "Oh, everybody's great. This is a wonderful sport." But now it's gloves are off time. Yeah, it's uh, gonna be fun. So four golfers. This is up on the website otbsports.com on the OTB app. Shane Larry, this is it. This is it for Shane Larry. Finally, at Wentworth, he's the headline tip at sixteen to one for five each way. Look, look, look at this record at Wentworth: nine top twenty finishes in twelve starts, uh, and we're like four times inside the top six. We know he's had a really good year, but he hasn't won. Tied third of the Masters, nearly won the Honda Classic, has been four times in the top ten on the PGA Tour in the United States. This is Shane Larry's ballpark. It's his alley. He loves his course, Wentworth. He drives the ball so well. He got the touch around the greens. Can he hold a few putts? I think he's a strong each way about this week as the headliner. Five each way. Ireland Shane Larry, 16-1 to one to win this big event this week. The second selection, it's folly not to expect these live golfers not to play well. And of all of them, who likes putting it up to everybody but Patrick Reed? Patrick Reed, two each, 250 each way, 40 to 1. We all know he wears the live uh, lettering on his clothes. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's an unrepentant liver. Uh, and he is a guy who's going to go and play in the Asian Tour now to get these ranking points. And he's turning up this week and he's, he's not going to care one jot. No. If he's not liked in that uh, locker room, he's, he's just feeding going. off us, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, although is, is is he not suing everybody as well for like yeah, well, quarter a quarter? Probably going to sue me for even talking about him this morning, right? <laughs> uh, so it, we love you, Patrick Reed. You're a wonderful human being. You're, 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 great, you're a great guy. Uh, <clears> so two 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 tournaments uh, appearances at the Wentworth. He's t- tied fourth, tied third. So he knows how to win. Former Masters champion. I think Patrick Reed has got a course form and has got the chip on the shoulder at uh, €2.50 each way, 40 to 1. Uh, he's, I think he's a good each way bet. The third one is Dean Burmaster from South Africa, 55 to 1 for 250 each way. Just won his PGA Tour card on the Corn Ferry Finals, so he's happy out. Good vibes. Once again, in five appearances here at Wentworth, he's got a tie for ninth, a tie for 12th. He was 11th in the Open. He was 7th in stroke average on the TP World Tour last year. He's 5th in driving distance. I think Dean Burmaster is more comfortable in this company now. I think he rates as a good each way bet as, ha- as a happy, calapy guy. And the final 
1, a complete rank outsider. Francesco Laporta, 175 to 1 for Euro 50 each way. Course form, recent form. Only appearance in this was last year, tied sixth. And on his last tight, uh, start, tied fourth in Denmark. Nearly could have won the tournament. So playing well and has course form. Francesco Laporta never won, but has won on the Challenge Tour. So Francesco Laporta, 175s. Dean Burmester, 55s. Patrick Reed, 40 to 1 for that awkward ceremony on Sunday evening. And the headline tip lads, uh, Kathleen and Jer. We have Shane, Shane Larry. Larry. Uh, sorry, what are, what are Larry's odds? 16 to 1 Okay um, The rank outsiders Like um, If you look back Over the course of And I'm sure At the end of the year You look back and go Where did the 22% profit come from It's been everything It has been like um, Headline tips And also the rank outsiders That's right Yeah we had Luke List 80 to 1 In the Farmers Insurance Open uh, We had Ryan Brem At 66 to 1 In the Puerto Rico Open Who missed I think Every single cut since then uh, paid for Owen's trip to America uh, We had uh, Scotty Scheffler 25 to 1 Won his first tournament uh, Back in Phoenix and then we had uh, Will Zalatoris recently won a 25s and Patrick Cantlay 16. So a mixture of both and a lot of heartbreak stories. Uh, no major success, ups and downs. But uh, look, ultimately it's about keeping the faith and I think we've done that. So uh, yeah, look, hopefully, uh, don't, look, don't, don't, don't lose your shirt, folks. These are a small little stakes, 20 euro here each, uh, this way and that every, every week. But uh, hopefully this week we'll uh, have a bit of fun. But the interesting thing about this, this the PGA Championship, you've got Andrew Oldcorn, Ben Ann, Scott Drummond, uh, Simon Can, you can have unheralded winners, so don't be put off if you think just think it's not just about Rory and John Ram this week. You could have an outsider winning. Who has been the most satisfying one for you? Which has been the call that you look back on now, and that's the one that Will's out of Taurus recently, Kathleen, because I was uh, actually in loss. I was about eight hundred out of a thousand, and that was the one that got me over back into profit. So that was the one, and he won in a playoff, and it took him about twenty-five holes to do it. So um, <laughs> zero on edge. You know, I, I don't, I don't really have a nervous system anymore after that. But uh, it's, it's it, the most satisfying one is when you feel like you've spotted something, and then it comes to fruition. But I've also been tearing my hair out this year over Matt Fitzpatrick winning the U.S. Open and going off players that, and then they go and win but that's the, the fun of it but yeah anytime you feel that you, you, your, your faith has been rewarded uh, and then it actually does happen it's, it is the most satisfying one That's this week's edition of Virtual Insanity What else is going on JD? Um, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting evening I think this evening with Liverpool and Naples uh, Jurgen Klopp saying he's never won there uh, Spurs playing Marseille Spurs back in the Champions League Conte I was looking at the stats he's only got he's only got a win record of 33% in the Champions League which is fascinating for him as a manager such an elite manager um, it has been his failing really as a manager Thomas Tuchel obviously is unhappy every single press conference is, uh, is, is got a lot of tension in it at the moment so I don't know what's happening at Chelsea we'll need to probably read the Athletics uh, 25,000 word article on it over the next few days and see uh, what's happening there? Uh, obviously, early in Holland, every single time we talk about him, you know, it's it's another uh, landmark or another record. I know he didn't even mention Holland and um, the goals last night or the routine four 0 away from home victory. For, yeah, it's kind of bloodless. It's kind of boring at this stage, and like we haven't even seen Holland in a city jersey all that much, and already it's kind of getting a bit like. Eh. Twelve it, goals in seven games, yeah. unbelievable. It's nice to watch at the time, but I don't really. There's not all that much you can say about it afterwards, apart from. He's phenomenally good. Gary Neville was comparing him to Jaws, the character in, uh, in uh, the James Bond movies. Uh, that's kind of ring of truth to that. You know, just get out of my way and, you know, I'm, I'm this kind of superhuman character. Um, and Celtic thought were great for about 50 minutes last night. I mean, anybody who went to that game, like, it was just unbelievable, that atmosphere. Like, you heard the Champions League mu- music through the TV screen, the hair's back of your neck. Um, and then the Kyrgios absolutely losing his, his rag overnight in, in New York probably with the knowledge that he really had a chance to win this Grand Slam and he's blown it um, Football of the Year <clears throat> yeah David Clifford is there, is there room for Killian McDade 
well, who could have been the third person? Because um, uh, Shane Walsh and David Clifford obviously were the top two. Is that what you mean? Well, no, I, to actually win it. No. <laughs> That's a very firm no. No, David Clifford, all the way. Like, Clifford's clearly the best footballer in the country. Yeah. But year after year after year after year after year after year, the best footballer in the country doesn't win it. Now, this is probably the year where they get over the line and he drags them over the line in is the it, final. Uh, when they're struggling yeah. in the first half, it's his marks that change the tide. And then, you know, again, he's, uh, he's just, he's unstoppable. But I would have said Shane Walsh had a better final, just because Shane Walsh was, like, literally carrying his whole team. Apart from Killian McDade, who, you know, is sensational in the quarterfinal the semi-final routine victory but he's very good the final he's also sensational um, you know kicking points on one leg at one stage I think what will go against him is that they'll probably split the Galway vote because this is the players that split the vote don't they uh, so that'll probably mean that David Clifford has a, an easy route to, to win it and um, I do think one thing Jack O'Connor did say to me after the game was the pressure that's on David Clifford and the composure that he shows like that it, he does have that beautiful equilibrium that I think that mm. yeah and he's had that pressure since he was under 14 with the highlights reels in the Hogan Cup matches uh, whatever the school's is, uh, competition is where he's like dribbling past players looking like a boy amongst men and then he's still doing it in All-Ireland finals and actually he was uh, also very good uh, against yeah. the Dubs yeah it was a 1997 vibe for Kerry this year they had to win it they had to win it um, eight years on uh, in Kerry that it's, it's a problem if you're not winning All-Ireland. So I, I think on the balance of it, it's a bit like Joe Canning when he won his All-Ireland and, and, and Player of the Year award. I think it's a bit like that. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. And it's, it's probably going to be the first of four or five in a row for David Clifford, is it? Well, you know, the dubs are, I don't know about Sligo, uh, Kathleen, but the dubs are, um, the dubs are, uh, need to get themselves, I think if Dublin get themselves right, they'll be definitely challenging Kerry next year. It's, uh, it's um, Mannion and Walsh versus Kula next weekend which yeah. I suspect will have a bigger TV audience and, and maybe a lot of these club games will because um, you know it's not sure. I mean, it's on Saturday so maybe is it on I'm not sure uh, but certainly you would hope a lot of people go and see it so it's Con versus Mannion and like both those players were missing for the dubs is there any chance that maybe Mannion just listens to all the hype and goes ah oh, maybe I will come back because the word is he's not coming back no like he's no. closed the door on that he's got no interest well, there's got, there's got to be a move on. He's pretty good. To, yeah, there's got to be a move on element though with Jack McCaffrey. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think McCaffrey. Anybody's yeah, talking about yeah, that. He's, yeah. he's he's definitely. But like Mannion is on TV last week, looking Clifford-esque in his ability to dominate a game. Granted, it's against you know a completely different opposition than it would be if it was in Croke Park and not in quarterfinal, semi-final, final, or even in the round robin next year. Hopefully, but he looked sensational. It sounds like a movie, Jar. You know, you've like a knock on the door and it's like late at night and it's Jim Gavin and Pat Roy at the door. We need you. Desi needs you. You know, you need to do it for the county. Maybe it's Con. Maybe it's <laughs> Con and Fenton going. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get the band back together one last time. Yeah. We need you. And, uh, you know, it's like 11 o'clock at night. It's open the door. What, what, what story, lads? We need you. We, you know, we, we own this all Ireland back. But um, I think Dublin do need to move on to a degree. That, that, that who are, we need to find the next five or six players. Because the whole talk around Dublin, around that semi-final, well, Con is injured. Whereas that was never the talk in the five in a row years because you had five or six or seven cons. Yeah, no, there was um, loads of injuries across that period and somebody always next yeah. man up. That was the difference, right? It's uh, 8.50 this morning, OTBAM. Brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. My thanks to John. More from John, of course, on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on Newstalk and, of course, on The Breakfast Show on Newstalk as well. Now, here is the uh, news round last night. Graham Gartland and uh, Stephen Doyle reacting alongside Joe to Ireland's 1-0 win against Slovakia. Emma Byrne on the other side of this. 
But you got to think about it like this, Joe. I know some people are saying, look, on the face, it wasn't a great game. No. It wasn't a very entertaining game. That's fair enough, OK? There were flashes of good play from Ireland, I thought, in the first half. But you got to put it into context. Um, they went into the game against Finland, looked a bit nervous, got the win that they needed. That put them through to the playoffs. That's grand. They knew today they just had to win this game to make sure they got into the top three of runners-up and that meant that they would bypass round one of the playoffs and just had to play one match and that one match could get them straight into the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. So they just needed three points today and they went out there and they just got the 1-0 win that they needed and they were very professional in the way they saw the game out, I thought. And, um, you know, you're not looking for brilliant performances at this stage of the campaign. You're just looking for the three points that get you where you want to go. Yeah, so they've beaten Slovakia and as Stephen says, the headline news is that means they can skip the first round of the playoffs when they start in October. So they're straight into uh, third place of all the group runners up. So it saves two playoff matches in one week and therefore gives them much bigger chance of making a World Cup. Graham, your thoughts on the game? Slovakia, are, like Ireland are a better team than Slovakia. Yeah. So you would have expected them to win. But I mean, it's stodgy. It's away from home. It's a bit warm. We were talking to the reporter over there as well. Listen, Ireland weren't at the most fluid. There was a massive change once Ireland went 1-0 up and how they approached the game. They stopped playing out from the back. Brosnan kicked long, I think, bar one kick out in the whole second half. But again they took their chances they had a lot more chances in the game than Slovakia had they had a oh, Kate McCabe's volley is unbelievable if that goes in you're still talking about it so they had moments in the game that were really of high quality we just didn't see it often enough um, but in terms of just being and going and doing a professional performance I think they're doing that away from home and if you if you offered them that before the game they would have taken it and now I'm joined by Emma Burns so to have a bit of a chat about last night. Ireland winning once again, not in the most convincing of fashion, we would probably say, Emma, but at least it's a win and we're through to the playoffs and we don't have to go through two of them. Exactly. And you know what? That's what we need to focus on. It was a fantastic achievement. I was a little bit worried going into the game. You know, Slo- Slovakia caused us problems in Tala. Um, and then I thought, obviously, with them being at home, they'd be even better. So I was quiet on social media until after the game. But um, it's fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant result. They're in an absolutely fantastic position. And, yeah, just really, really positive uh, vibes coming from the game. Maybe not the performance themse- itself, but moving on, one game left to play. And, you know, it's a cup final, the biggest cup final of their lives. You say maybe not the performances themselves. I know a lot of us maybe expected more, especially out of the last two games in terms of a few more goals, a bit more interplay between the team itself. But how do you think, where do you think this team has landed considering where we ended up at the end of the Euros qualification? And to you, is it as important to get those, I suppose, dirty wins or those more like tough, hard grinding wins than it is to maybe show that we can play fast flowing beautiful football (laughs) and I mean I think we've always been a team that scrapped for points and and that's not going to change over the short haul but you know yes it's very very important getting the points and it's very important to have gotten to this position second place in this group but was the realistic goal we've achieved it so fantastic brilliant all round But at the end of the day, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more composure on the ball, you know, show that we can control games. Um, Because when we go and we play again, even in the playoffs, 
hopefully we'll win that. When we go and we play in these big tournaments, yeah, we will be defending. That's obvious. Yes, we will have five at the back, but we were, we're going to have to keep the ball at some stage during the games. And I would have liked to have seen that in these last couple of games to show that we can keep the ball, we can control the game at times. Um, and I just don't really feel like we've shown that. I would agree. There was a few times last night where I was quite frustrated because we were kicking these long balls up to the likes of Heather Payne and Jessu and even Katie and Denise. And it's not necessarily the sort of balls you want up to those players. And there wasn't any need as well. Like we could have played through the midfield a bit more. I, I don't know, was the team a little bit scarred from the game against Finland where that midfield option was pretty much taken out of us because it was where Finland concentrated all their energy. But whenever it did go through and I mean that's basically where the goal came from it was Jesse taking the ball from midfield little interplay with Denise Sullivan off to Heather in the corner and we had a great goal I mean to be fair to Denise it was a bit of class that actually took it to get it into the net but why do you think there is still that fear because you don't Heather Payne and Jesse don't need long balls they need people to be able to keep up with them and play with them with the ball at their feet why do you think even against that Slovakian team we're still a bit hesitant to do that I just I just think it's the the panic option it's the easier option and I don't think the girls are comfortable playing you know keeping the ball playing through midfield they don't seem comfortable whether that information is coming from from the bench or, or it's the girls themselves. I'm not quite sure, but they definitely, it's, it was a game yesterday for them to show that a hundred percent. And, you know, we were kicking a lot of long balls and don't get me wrong. Heather Payne is one of the best players I've seen at chasing around. And then when it, she does get a hold of it, she keeps it very, very well, but it's not going to work. You know, they've got a month. It's not enough time for them to work on that, but you definitely have to start in the in these kind of games to build that confidence within the team to play through the midfield. And when you've got players like Denise O'Sullivan and Rusha Littlejohn, not last night, but these are these are footballers, these are ballers. They want the ball to their feet, and it's the only way that they can get involved in the game. You know, you've also got Katie, who's obviously world class. I just think. You know, you need to, it needs to come from the bench. It needs to come from training. It needs to be worked on in training, possession games. Train like Barca, run the 24 hours a day. You know, just, just get a hold of the ball and practice it because it didn't look like they were even trying to do it, to be quite honest. And, you know, if you brought a midfielder from, from from the Spanish league into our Irish team, they'd be very, very frustrated and they'd show it on the pitch that they want the ball to feed. And I'm still not seeing that from the players either. That's part of the thing that surprised me as well. I almost expected to see more frustration from the players on the pitch and it's not like they're exactly quiet players. I mean, we've all seen Katie when she gets frustrated. It's not that they were happy because I, I presume with the performance that they wouldn't have walked away entirely happy with it. Probably obviously delighted that they got the second round playoffs base but I just I wonder is that push coming internally like off the pitch because I was waiting for someone to start screaming last night and be like come on like we're better than this we can do more we can play more and it didn't seem to come from anywhere and I thought that was surprising considering the leaders we do have on that pitch yeah I mean it, it was a game to win um it was a game just to get the points so I'm sure you know 
when that goal went in, it was relief and it was just about keeping a clean sheet and they were successful. So I want to give them plaudits for that, you know. Um, but, but for me, even not even just keeping the ball, even the press for me, mm. I didn't really understand the press because that was another game that you couldn't really sort out how you press. And again, that's going to be extremely important when you play against the higher teams. And, um, you know, Heather Payne was pressing on her own and the gap between her and the midfield was huge. It, you just get absolutely eaten up um, if you're playing against a really good footballing team. So, like, that was a little bit concerning for me, the press also. Um, but, you know, it was a game that they knew they were going to win the ball back when, you know, Slovakia didn't have the, the quality to keep the ball and, and to break them down. So they knew they were going to win the ball back if they sat back a little bit as well. So... You know, that it wasn't a problem last night, but against Finland as well, I wasn't impressed with the, the, the press itself. Mm. Um, that for me is the first thing. And then you can talk about possession when you win it back, but you're going to have to get that press right again when you're playing in, in the playoff. That's going to have to be absolutely perfect. And like you said there, as much as we criticise, you do also want to give plaudits to the performance and the overall fact that we have qualified. And very specifically, Jessu is a player I think we have to pick out because for me, I wasn't entirely sure by her performance against Finland. I wasn't entirely sure about a lot of players' performance against Finland on the night. But I thought last night I could see exactly where she had picked up her game, where the little things she had worked on, she seemed a lot more confident than she had the night before. And I don't know, was that just general nerves being a talent, all the pressure that was put on it? For you, what was the standout thing from her performance? Um, Well, there was a couple of us... Uh, footballers, I'm former obviously, but uh, current footballers watching the game and they were all talking about Jess and how good she was and you know that's that's really nice and you nearly feel like a, a proud mammy when someone's talking about when the Irish players like that, that are very high standard and it showed, Just I just thought her movement off the ball was exceptional and obviously when she's on the ball, her natural skill and keeping the ball and her vision as well, like she looked like a completely different player. We were actually, myself and Nathan, when we were commentating on the, the Finland game, we were like, she's coming off. She's going to get taken off in this first half. She's out of her depth. She was getting shoved off the ball. She wasn't in good positions. She was kind of like in defensive midfield and not sure when to push up. But last night, it just looked a little bit clearer for her. She was an attacking player. She was getting the ball to feet, which, again, is a player that needs to be on the ball, ball to feet, something that we need to improve on. And when she does get that ball to her feet, you can see exactly what she does. Absolutely brilliant coming in from the right-hand side, by the way, which I think is she should definitely stay wide. Um and for me, it was her movement off the ball that, that Denise actually got the chance in the first place. She created it, passing it into Denise, and then kept her run going, which completely dragged the Slovakian defenders away from Denise and gave her all that space in the area. So actually, Jessu was, she created the goal and, and she, she, well, she created the goal as in passing and she created the goal by creating the space for Denise. So Denise can thank her for that for sure. Yeah, I think she even said herself afterwards that when she was out in the wing, she enjoyed it a lot more. And on that right side, she had a lot. She said herself, she's like, I had a lot of fun. And you could see that in her play. And there were a few times where she was caught down in the corner. And I was like, there's no way she's going to get out of this. And she did. And it was just pure ability with the ball at her feet. And I think with the move to the WSL now as well, that's even better. 
Exactly. I mean, it looked easy for her. Like people are comparing her to Katie McCabe. Yes, they should, because just that natural ability on the ball. And yeah, you're right, Kathleen, with that move to West Ham, which is going to be absolutely fundamental for her development. A little bit later on in her career than maybe I would have liked to see. But it's going to be fantastic. And we spoke about that last week as well, about how crucial that is for her um, to be training day in, day out with professionals and high standard of players. It's going to be fantastic for her. So really exciting player to watch. Um, I think we're going to be talking a lot about her over the next few years, for sure. Definitely. And when you consider the fact she's only been in pre-season and like a short amount of training time with that squad and already you can kind of see a little bit of a jump in the way she's performing. I think I agree with you in that we're going to be talking about her for a long time. Hopefully she can keep fit and stay away from any injuries. Um, I think like there was a lot of relief around last night and possibly that was the scars of previous tournaments coming up to bear. But do you think people should be all that surprised that we're in this position now? I mean, We keep talking, I know you and I have talked about it a couple of times that this is one of the best generations of footballers that we've had, probably the best opportunity we've had to qualify for a major tournament. And that's after following them day in, day out. Is it surprising to you that we're at this place at this time? No, it's not surprising. Um, I think we should be there. Um, I'm surprised we're not talking about bad luck because I feel like we have been dealt a few bad hands in the past. But this is our natural position. This is exactly where we should be. Um, I mean, the results against Sweden this campaign have kind of spoken for themselves. Such narrow a narrow defeat, 1-0 and then a 1-1 draw away. It just shows, you know, we can compete when we need to, when we have to. Um, and we should be qualifying for major tournaments now. It's just such a shame that we're always talking about never qualified. And I'm hoping we're not saying that again because, you know, it's still a very, very big game that we have to play in a month's time. And um, I think, you know, we have the players as well. We're, we're, we've got one of the best players in the world in KD. You've got also very, very excellent players playing around her like Denise. Um, and then other players like Jessu, Nifahi that probably don't get spoken about enough. Um, so, yeah, we should be here. We should be qualifying. It's not a surprise at all. Um, and, you know, I just really, really hope that we can we have the confidence and we have the game plan and we're organised enough when we do go into the playoff to, to, to get that win and, and then we can really talk about how football is going to develop in Ireland. Well, you mentioned the playoffs there. How optimistic are you that we will... I mean, it's kind of out of our hands in the sense that we need someone to do us a favour with the final three, but how optimistic are you that we ourselves can actually get a win and put ourselves in the best place possible to progress now and not have to wait for the intercontinental tournament in the new year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's such a strange format, isn't it? <laughs> I wasn't celebrating when we when we beat Finland because I was like, I know we've got a playoff, but it's like another tournament unless we beat Slovakia. Do you know, it was like, it's just too much. And even now, we've done everything we've, we could in coming second, top three, second place in the tournament. And we still need a favour. We still need Switzerland and Iceland to drop somebody to, to, to beat them. Um, 
for us to go through. It doesn't, it's just very strange. But anyway, it can happen. If you look at that group um, that they're in the, the initial playoffs, I think we're very, very similar standard. Everybody in, in, it's just such a hard one to call. You know, if you look at the teams we've played recently or in the last few years, the, the Portugal's, Iceland, Wales, all in that group, Belgium, um, and very narrow wins and losses, 1-0 here. We beat Portugal 3-0. That was our biggest uh, win in that group. Hmm. Extremely difficult to call. And yes, people can take um, take on Iceland and Austria. So I do feel hopeful. Um, and yeah, we do need a bit of luck. And we need. it's about time we had a bit of good luck, isn't it? Like It really that. is. I mean, that. you know, Karen Duggan, me and her have been talking about this for months and months now of just like asking anyone who supports this team or anyone who supports Ireland in any code, it doesn't even matter if it's football or not, to just whatever gods you pray to, just get us over the line because we deserve it it's been long enough and I think as well like you said this team has proven that they are good enough and they just need that little bit of luck just to kind of push them over that line yeah I mean it's already a bit of bad luck that they've changed the format (laughs) (laughs) but now we would have been talking about you know going to New Zealand or Australia already coming Mm. uh, I opened the group um, but yeah, I mean, do you know what? We need to be positive. I think we need to start talking positively about the girls, about the team, because they can do it. They just need that bit of confidence. Um, they need to switch the mindset. You know, we speak, we've spoken about them holding the ball, keeping the ball. They know, they know, I've speaking, spoken to the girls. They know they have to do that. You know, they want to be able to do that. They play at high level, club level, um, and they know they have to do it. So, it's just a case of going into that mindset and being brave on the day and having options. You know, you can't just, we're not, we've spoken about midfield, you know, keeping the ball and getting on the ball. Midfield need other players. They need the defence to give them options. Midfield, they need defence to give them angles. And, you know, we can talk about the defence as well, not getting on the ball. So it's a, it's a team thing. Everyone needs to be confident. Everyone needs to be looking for the ball, no one hiding. And that's the only way you're going to get through this playoffs. Mm. You talk there about the way we can qualify and the fact that they have changed the qualification process and just looking at the results last night, I think there was one fifteen nil, two ten nil, two eight nil, one seven nil, you know, not the sort of score lines you want to be seeing and it's something that people have talked about for quite a long time. and Vera Powell it's quite against changing things the way they are, but I've seen a lot of people calling for a nations league style tournament for these qualifiers. Is that something that you think would benefit Ireland in the long term? Or would you be of the Virapau school of thought that we might get stuck in maybe a lower tier and not be able to progress in a way that we would like? Um, I mean, I don't think it's good for the game. So I would personally, I'd like to see it change a little bit. Um, I'd like to see it reversed instead of coming second and finishing one of the best runners up and then having to go and play a tournament. I'd rather see that before the, the, you get to the, the group stages, to be quite honest. Um, and yeah, we might get stuck in that lower level, but only it would only be once because, you know, we're, we're way, way better. It just so happens that we haven't qualified for a tournament. Um, but, you know, we, we could prove that we're way better than that and, th- and then play those games and get those out of the way and go into the higher level because you don't want to see 10, 12, 15 nil. You don't want to see it in the Premier. You don't want to see it in the men's. You don't want to see it in the women's. You don't want to see it. And um, 
the only way you're going to, uh, you know, stop those kind of results is if you play that pre-tournament qualifier to get into the actual group stage. And to move it slightly away from Ireland, just for one of our final questions, obviously WSL starting this weekend, transfer window closes today. Kira Walsh, it was announced last night, is on the very cusp of signing a world record fee with Barcelona. I mean, such a scoop for them to get her, if they can manage it, especially with a year left on her contract. Barcelona's recruiting this summer has been interesting. They've brought in some, I mean, the Lucy Bronze of the world, some really top players kind of different to how they've built in the past how do you think Kira Walsh is going to fit into that squad I mean she's an exceptional player so you would imagine quite smoothly And but what, from your perspective as someone who's followed Barcelona for quite a long time Yeah it's interesting isn't it um, you know the table has flipped completely Every, people wanted to come to Man City and now everyone wants to go to, to Barca um, I mean Barca why wouldn't you want to go there let's be honest the city itself is just a, a major pull um, it is interesting how they're recruiting I think um, that uh, Gerale, Jonathan Gerales the, the manager of, of Barca has realised that you know they might have been slipping a little bit and for him to, to compete against the likes of Leon, who they struggled in the last in last year's Champions League final for them to compete they're going to have to get a different type of player and as good as the Spanish players players are they do need a little bit of variety and obviously with Lucy Bronze um, they needed a right back they needed that player and Lucy was on the market so it's a very good signing for them but I've been singing Kira Walsh's praises for a long time and just a fantastic player absolutely brilliant holding midfielder great playmaker Um. It's going to be interesting because she's going to have to defend a lot at Barca. That that role, that holding midfield player's role at Barca actually does a lot of defensive work. And it's something that we might not see Kira do that much or she's done that much. So I'm, I'm interested to see how she, she picks up that role. But again, you're talking about a team that beat other teams 7, 8, 9, 10, nil, and maybe have four competitive games in the season. Um, I don't think she'll need to worry too much, to be honest. No, I don't think so. And while I am sad that she is leaving the WSL, the new Days and Deal means that I'll still be able to watch her playing over in Spain, which is great for all of us, even the likes of Caroline Weir. What a fantastic thing for La Liga, by the way. Mm -hmm. They they really messed up in the last couple of years fighting about rights for for, the the women's football's uh, TV rights. And in the end, nobody was shown it. And it's such a shame because coming off the back of France, they had such a good tournament and there was massive interest. And then for two years, couldn't watch it properly. So it's great. It's great to see. It is. And thank you, Emma. Hopefully we will be chatting about the World Cup in a year's time and we won't be reflecting on any of these games where we nearly, nearly didn't do it. But (laughs) thank you. Thanks, Kathleen. Take care. Uh, OTB AM is brought to you every morning by Gillette Labs from effortless finish to your day. Now here's what we've got coming up on OTB Sports Radio today. From 1pm, OTB Gold with Sonia O'Sullivan. Then we will have... uh, 
section of the Koi Gig podcast with Mary Rose Kai with a WSL preview ahead of the weekend. Our retro panel is capturing sporting moments and then on OTB Gold, Emmanuel Petit. Follow Off the Ball across all social channels, subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to download the OTB Sports app for the latest in the best sports content and analysis. Now with the Premier League back, so we've teamed up with one of Europe's largest sports events, ticketing and hospitality companies, Champions Travel, to give you the opportunity to win a 250 euro Champions Travel voucher each day this week. These can be used on Premier League match trips as well as a host of other sporting events. Daily winners will be entered into our grand prize draw where one lucky winner will win a trip from a selection of Premier League games with flights and two nights accommodation included. To enter us, tell us who the man telling us what quote he has tattooed on his back. Where's your brother? What do you get at? You can tweet us your guest now on our main Twitter account, which is at Off the Ball, and we will give you another chance to hear that voice. Where's your brother? What do you get at? We will be back after the break with Malachi Clerken for You Had to Be There. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. Now I am joined in studio by Philly again. And we also have Irish Times sports journalist Malachi Clerken on the line to talk about Malachi's selections of You Had to Be There. Five excellent choices from Malachi. Uh, only one of them I have been at personally, but I'm looking forward to chatting to them. How are you doing, Malachi? I'm well, Kathleen. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. And Phil, you said you've been at one of these before as well? Yeah, yeah, one of them. And it was, yeah, and when I saw this, uh, it just brought back the, the memories of, of working at it. And just the the heart rate was, oh my God, yeah. I, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. More, but my God, it just, yeah. Malachi, you've obviously been to quite a lot of exciting events over the last few years. What was your thought process when you were thinking about the events you wanted to choose? You're very kind, Kathleen. You're about to say over your very long, long <laughs> career, you very old never, man. Never, never. very old, old man. Uh, yeah, like uh, my my response um, when Andy got on to me yesterday was... Uh, yeah, yeah, five is going to be hard to pick here um, because um, I was really, really lucky uh, in the early part of my career when I worked in the Sunday Tribune. Um, I was a, kind of a general sports writer and managed to get to a lot of different different sports. These days I, I, I do mostly GAA, but I got to travel an awful lot during the 2000s and go to an awful lot of great sport. Like I went to Ryder Cups and the Masters and... Uh, Olympics and the World Cup and uh, the Euros and uh, Cheltenham Gold Cups and Grand Nationals and all that sort of stuff and it was all fantastic you know like there was there was an awful lot of it but my thought process funny enough the first thing that jumped into my mind was a really early one and I think I only have it at like two or three on my list but it was I, I did the Euros in Portugal in, in 2004 and it was my first time being away really it was certainly my first time at a big tournament and I there was loads of great matches at it, but there was there was one particular one, and we'll get to it. I, I think you guys want to do this in order, so I'll, I'll talk about it then. But the, it was the starting point for when I was drawing up a list because um, a lot of them, a lot of them, the um, the thing that I remembered about them changed the older I got, if that makes any sense, and mm. that'll become more and more apparent as I as I as go you go through, through your list. <laughs> but the fir- but but the one at the Euros in two thousand and four was just it 
it was a matter of being it was, it was the first time I don't know if it was the first time but it was the time that really stands out in my memory of going holy shit this is this is this is a great life I've chosen for myself here. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is brilliant like, well done me <laughs> a great feeling <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well we'll get straight into it then so 2017 All-Ireland Football Final Dublin versus Mayo is your first pick of the bunch were you working at this one or were you there as a spectator not only was I working, but I had to file on the whistle. Oh so uh, I, I had to take uh, the most incredible sports event, I'd say, that I've ever been at <laughs> and file a report on it about five minutes after it finished. So, um, yeah, that was a very heightened experience. And like I knew at the time, and I think all of us that were there and everybody that watched knew at the time that it was an extraordinary piece of sport. Um, but I've gone back to it since a couple of times. And actually last year, yeah, ahead of the Dublin Mayo semi-final in 2021, I actually went back to it and did a big piece looking back at it. Essentially because I wanted to see, like, was I kidding myself or was I over-romanticizing it or was I making it out to be a bigger thing or a better thing than it actually was. And it turned out that I had I had sort of lowballed <laughs> it, that the quality of it was really, really beyond extraordinary and only matched by the drama of it. Like like a million things happened in that match. I think when and and now we can now we're sort of far enough removed from the dubs winning their six in a row and and it's particularly their five in a row because the sixth one was was in the pandemic and it was a kind of an anomalous one, but they all count, of course. But I think we're far enough removed to go back and see that that was the dubs at their best, that the the semi-final, they had demolished Tyrone, uh, a Tyrone team that people had kind of fancied and they had just completely shown that... You know, they had worked out how to play against a team playing with a blanket defence. That it was what everything had led towards since since Donegal had beaten them in, in 2014. And Conor Callahan had just arrived. And when I say arrived, like he scored a goal after 83 seconds of his first All Ireland final by skinning Colin Boyle, uh, like a four or five time All Star. Like it was just ridiculous in his first, the first time, his first touch of a ball in an All Ireland final. I think that was the best Dublin team. Like they, and and the, and by extension, I think it was the best Mayo team. You know, it was everybody was fit. They had no injuries. Lee Keegan was there. Tom Parsons. It was the best best season of Tom Parsons' life. Um, Aidan O'Shea was. <laughs> I think I think Mayo scored nine points in the first half, and Aidan O'Shea had a hand in eight of them. Like he, he had an extraordinary first half performance, and still still got uh, shit for it afterwards because <laughs> he took on a, a stupid shot with the outside of his boot that he didn't score in the second half at a bad time. It was a bad miss, and. But the two the two teams were so well matched, and they went at it. It was just mile a minute, and it was phenomenal. And it was, and it came down to what it came down to. Like it came down to the last minute, Killian O'Connor misses a free, 
at one end of the pitch that's an inch to the left, two inches to the left, it goes in off the post rather than coming out off the post. Dean Rock scores a free at the other end with Lee Keegan throwing his GPS at him. It was it, it was really monumental game of football. And for it to be in the All-Ireland final is like it happens once a decade that the best match of the year is in the All-Ireland final. It happens almost never that the best match of a decade is an All-Ireland final. And I know there were a lot of great matches in the 2010s. I know a lot of people would would say that the All-Ireland semi-final in 2013 between Kerry and Dublin was probably the best match. And I was at it too, and it was just mind-blowing as well. But to me, for sheer drama, for the two best teams to be duking it out like that, um, that that game just stands above. It. I think it's. I look. I don't know recency bias and all that. Even though it's like five years ago now, but I think it. I think it stands above anything I, I've ever been at. How many words do you have to file for that? Oh, they didn't care. <laughs> the great thing about about the live report uh, after a game is that um, there's no there's no dedicated word count. It's not like you have to fit a certain amount into the newspaper. It goes up online. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I'd say it was about a thousand words. <laughs> I think it was just and it just kind of. But but when it's that good, it just pours out of you. Like there was so much incident. The whole tone like, of the piece though is hanging in the balance. Totally. Totally. Like, there was a brilliant... Actually, when I went back to, to do the piece last year, um, there was an 11-minute period. Actually, hang on, I get I, I, I get what I wrote here because it's... Um, it, it actually... Yeah, there was an 11-minute period at the start of the second half from, say, 42 minutes to 53 minutes where... So Stephen Cluxton makes a brilliant save from Jason Doherty. Uh, Dublin go up the other end of the pitch. Paul Mannion straight in on David Clark. He makes a brilliant save. Two minutes later, John Small like mistimes a shoulder and Colin Boyle, uh, second yellow card. Everybody knows he's about to get a second yellow card. And this is it. Like the whole of Mayo, everybody knows, oh my God, there's a half an hour left here. Dublin are going to be down a man. This is it. This is, this is, this is actually happening. And it lasts like two seconds because Donald Vaughan comes in and buries him uh, <laughs> and gets sent off himself. And you're just going, and that that those two saves and the two red cards happened within like four minutes of each other. Um, then Dublin score a few points. Then Lee Keegan comes forward for a goal. Then, um, yeah, he comes forward for a goal. And so what it was in the space of eleven minutes, there had been two point blank saves, two red cards, a Mayo goal into the hill, five points scored from five attempts, and not a single wide. And then you just, everybody sort of sits around and goes, there's 20 minutes left here. This game is insane. <laughs> Even it's listening good. to that, you're like, how did that all fit into just 11 minutes yeah, of playing yeah, time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just, uh, it was it was unbelievable. It really, it really, really was. And it stands, I, as I say, it, I think it stands the test of time. I think, I think it's the ultimate argument in any, any, like we we all know how great that Dublin team was. Like we're all lucky to have been around for it, even though it didn't probably feel like it for an awful lot of us in the middle of it because they just kept winning and winning and winning. But like in year in twenty years and thirty years, we'll be able to go. Look, that was it. Like 
say what you want about the players today, but that team was spectacular. They really were fantastic. Like we forget, Jack McCaffrey went off after three minutes of this game. Um, with a, um, he did his knee. Like he was gone for after three minutes. Paul Flynn had to come on and play uh, play in midfield. James McCarthy had to move back. Like that. That's the level of player you're talking about. But any argument that there ever is about Mayo being bottlers or Mayo being chokers or whatever, I mean, I just challenge anybody to watch that game. They they absolutely lived, not even lived. Like they they outplayed the greatest Dublin team of the age for long stretches of that match. They weren't good enough to win, and that's fine. And, you know, they, they never won their All-Ireland. But I always go back to that game. And I, and if, for anybody who sneers at, at, at those Mayo teams, uh, like, they're just, they don't know anything about sport if they can watch that game. And, like, they played geez, so many games that went to draws and replays and all of that sort of stuff. And fine, Dublin were better in the end, but Dublin were better than everybody in the end. Nobody else was anywhere close. And, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that game, will, that'll be with me forever. A bit of a change for your second one compared to that, but we have the Cheltenham, 2008 Cheltenham Gold Cup, yeah. named one of the most memorable races ever. Where is this... What, what was this one for you? Why did it stick out? Did I read that initially when you started out in your sporting career, racing wasn't really something that Not you took all. much interest in? And then obviously Not, yeah. you've kind of gone the other direction now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was funny. I, again, it goes back to how lucky it was uh, working in the Tribune at the time. Like we had a very small staff, so you don't get to sort of say, well, I'm just a soccer writer or I'm just a GA writer like everybody sort of did everything and in around 2004 they said go on you go over and do Cheltenham and literally like I I, I don't downplay this in the slightest 2004 Cheltenham was the first time I'd ever been to a horse race Uh, you know I I could not have told you I barely knew the front end of a horse from the back of it. Like I really had no, I had no expertise, no sense of anything really. I, you know, it wasn't even a sport that I was overly interested in growing up because, like, to me, like it was very hard to understand. It, it always seemed to be about gambling, and I wasn't a big gambler, and my dad was never like we'd we'd back back a horse in the Grand National, but. So, you know, that'd be it. You know, the last thing you'd be doing on a Saturday would be checking out, you know, who won the 320 at Kempton. Like, it just never, never occurred to us. And, um, but I went to Cheltenham in 2004 and, and it is a, it's an extraordinary event and in an extraordinary place. And the more I got into it, the more I met the people involved in it. Like, there's some of the most incredible sports people around. Uh, jockeys especially, but trainers too. Like it's a it, it it's a really weird life to pick for yourself, and you kind of you're mostly born into it. Very few people kind of decide to come from the outside world into it because it can be quite clannish, but it's also an awful lot of hard work and all of that sort of stuff. But anyway, by 2008, one of the things that we had done in the Tribune was we had brought Ruby Walsh on as a as a as a columnist. And I was ghostwriting it. And I basically sat down with Ruby and said, I know nothing really about horse racing. So you're going to have to talk to me as if I'm a two-year-old here. And 
essentially this column isn't going to be you tipping horses every week. It's going to be you explaining to uh, an uneducated world what the world of horse racing is like. And it was a very good column. And he, like Ruby, as, as he's gone on to be on TV now in, uh, in retirement, is a brilliant explainer. Like, like he, he, he would balk at me saying this because he never liked school, but he would be a brilliant teacher because he takes everything down to brass tacks and makes it really easy to understand while making it completely compelling. And he's one of Ireland's greatest ever sports people. Like he's just an extraordinary winner. Um, and so I had become quite close to him. And in 2007, he had had this amazing season with Cotto Star. And Cotto Star was the first like superstar horse that I got to kind of understand and kind of looked out for when his races came and all that sort of stuff. And um, by 2008, his stablemate had come along, this huge horse called Denman. And again, you know, like three years beforehand, I wouldn't have known the difference in styles between the two of them. Cotto Star was this regal prince of a horse, like this beautiful, gorgeous thing that you know, uh, could win races at loads of different distances, could win at two miles, could win at three and three and a quarter miles, but like was fast, but also stayed. And odd, like did this, this complete piece of equine perfection. Whereas Denman was this big bull of a thing. Like you could, like he was a monstrous thing. And they called him the tank. And they were at the same yard, Paul Nichols' yard in England. They were in the same stables, like they literally lived one box over from each other. And so it was this great um, sort of, there was this great narrative around it. And even, even at that, like I wouldn't have included that here, except for, and this is what always sticks with me. There's the Gold Cup, on Gold Cup Day at Cheltenham, there's about, there's about 40 minutes between the the race before the Gold Cup and the Gold Cup. And the whole week becomes about that race. And some years, it's a middling old Gold Cup. You know, the, the horses are scratchy enough. There's no obvious superstar. Um, or some years, there's a really obvious superstar and the rest of them are all just kind of out with the washing and nobody, you know, there's no real excitement around it. Whereas this year... There was these two horses. There was Denman and there was Cotto Star. Ruby had had the choice. He, he could have chosen to ride either of them. So that was, you know, that was a subplot going on. They were both trained by the same guy, Paul Nichols, and everybody pretty much knew that it was going to come down to these two. And the reason I picked it for this list is anytime I'm ever asked about the sporting event you were at where there was the most tension... I always come back to this. And I don't know, I, I don't know if, again, with all of these things, it's all subjective and maybe you're overselling things. But I remember the half an hour, 40 minutes before that race. And like Cheltenham is this wild place. Like there's, and especially on Gold Cup Day, there's thousands there and people are, people are half paced and people are betting and everybody's having a good time. But the tension, the tension, because everybody had one or the other. And, well, what do you think? What do you think? Who's it going to be? Do you have Cardo? Do you have Denman? Who will it be? Who will it be? I don't know. I don't know. Because literally nobody knew. Nobody could say, if you were going with any confidence, you were kind of spoofing, really. You know, you, there was nobody could say for sure how this race was going to turn out. And um, 
I remember I remember clear as day I was there with Vincent Hogan from the Indo and Philip Quinn from the Mail. He's the Mail now. Was he the Mail then? I can't remember. But anyway, it was the three of us. And we went down to the last fence. And that's the great thing about Cheltenham as well, that you can walk to the inside of the course and stand at the last fence and watch them go by. And in all, actually, in all the years that I, not all the years, but any time I'd been to Cheltenham, I don't remember having actually done that. Certainly not for the Gold Cup. And I remember we were down at the last fence when they came round just before they went out on the final circuit. And the three of us were standing. We could have been no more than eight feet from where the where the horses passed. And you get you you got that sense of like when you watch horse racing on TV and they do these graceful jumps over the fences. You go, wow! It's such it's nature. It's such beautiful poetry that they're they, they they're involved in. Jesus Christ! When you're up close to these these horses and it's God Almighty, especially Denman. Like, you have to kind of step back because they're these powerful, huge machines going at a massive, massive pace. Denman kind of led it out and, and in the end ran ran Cotto's stamina out of him um, and galloped up the hill and went away and won. And uh, I remember... Cause, because I was 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 close enough to Ruby at the time, and and we would go on to write write a book together. Um, I remember kind of feeling ah, like I I I wanted Cotto to win, you know, or I wanted Ruby to win back to back gold cups, which he he came back the following year and and won the two thousand and nine one. But I wanted it for him, so I was a bit kind of down at the result. But I I came away going I I I've never been around any a place where there was that that real thick tension for for 40 minutes before an event. Malachi, I feel like I was there just listening to you <laughs> describe it. We may have to run through your final three a bit quick because you could literally <laughs> talk to you for hours about this. But your third one is 2004 France versus England at the Euros. The Zidane free kick. I think a lot of people will remember the end of this one. Well, yeah, like, and I, I kind of vaguely mentioned this before. Like, I was 25, I think. It was my first time ever at a big tournament. Like, I was a soccer guy growing up, really. That was my sport, you know. And um, to be at a major tournament was, like, you know, over the years, you become, like, you, you know, you, you become less, not, not not impressed with it all, but you understand that, look, it's a job, you know. At, at the back of it all, you go, you get the work done, you leave, and... You can't be a fan your whole life. But like I was 25 and this was on a Sunday night. That's important because I was working for a Sunday paper. So this was essentially a night off. And I was in Lisbon, one of the world's great cities, going to watch England play France, which was the kind of glamour tie of the first uh, first round. And I had no work to do. So it was fantastic. It was a free hit. And Rooney played in that game. And Rooney was 17 and was taking the world by storm. And well, he absolutely battered France. Um, and England went ahead. Rooney skated in, uh, beat beat three or four of them to get uh, in for a penalty, uh, which Beckham hit and uh, Barthez saved. And that would have won the game for England. Um, and in the 90th minute, France get a free on the uh, edge of the area. And I, I, I'll never forget this thought. I remember going, all right, Zidane, if you're the man, let's see it. Let's see it. <laughs> he absolutely did it. So you, you're you crediting yourself with getting that Zidane free kick in, are you? <laughs> mm, not really. But what I was in my head was going, 
Jesus Christ, I'm here for this. Yeah. I, holy, like, like I, I, in in my head, I was going, I, I'm here. This is a magnificent game. This is one of the world's greatest players. He was my favorite player at the time, of course, but like he was everybody's favorite player at the time. But I, it was my first time ever being in, I think, ever being in the company of an all-time great. And he actually went and did the thing that made him the all-time great. And then two minutes later... Um, he scored a penalty as well. Steven Gerrard gave a stupid ball back to David James. Thierry Henry was fouled and Zidane scored the winner. So that was it. That was that, that was that was brilliant. That was really brilliant. 2008 was clearly a good year for you because you also have the Olympic 100 yeah. meter final yeah. with Usain Bolt. Yeah, and like this is you know I'm not an athletics reporter. I, n- I never was, but you know you go to the Olympics and you cover everything. And I remember it was the day that Darren Sutherland won his bronze medal um, and I had to run from it across it was a Saturday so I'd, I had a lot of uh, it was a busy day but it was great like you're at, you're at the Olympics there's an Irish medal and then you finish it off on Saturday night with uh, with the 100 metres final and I'd never been to again like Cheltenham you know like this is how lucky I was I'd never been to an Olympics I'd never been to a track meet really <laughs> had I had I even been out to the Irish seniors I don't think I had so like the literally like the first race I ever reported on was Usain Bolt breaking the world record in the 100 meters final in the Olympics and um, just a small brag for you there Maliki <laughs> like it's not, but, but it's not even a brag like it's kind of going no, like yeah. that was just yeah, I was so lucky you know really to be around it and um it was extraordinary. Like it was, it was really amazing. Like the hundred meters final, the lights went down. They played a drum beat over the start to 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 mimic your pulse because whatever way they did it, and it was kind of needless theatre. And then this guy just he's that he was the last one out of the blocks, and then he just sprinted past everybody with his lace open and uh, took like two tenths off the world record or whatever it was like and I remember writing at the time like God knows whether this is real or not like what do I know who you know none of us know if this is if we can believe this or not but Jesus Christ this was some event you know it was it was extraordinary to be there like it you know afterwards everybody was skeptical and the 100 metres is a filthy event and filthier than even the Tour de France. And like, I still don't know if it was real or not, but I do know that it was, it was amazing to be there at the time. It really, really it was really extraordinary. And to round off your list, um, we've gone mm. back to the GA. We have the 2014 All-Ireland Hurling Final, drawn match between Kilkenny and Tipperary, which, fun fact, was my first ever All-Ireland Final. And I just wow. remember being absolutely shocked at like this big old man beside me screaming, come on, Bubbles, do it, Bubbles, come on, Bubbles. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> it was my first like proper experience of being in that sort of atmosphere, and it was yeah. incredible. Yeah, like another amazing game. Like you know, Hurling Hurling produces these games two or three times a year. Like it's what makes it the sport it is. I remember um, shortly about a week after this game, I got an email from two Danish journalists who were. I think they were they wrote for like Danish Lonely Planet or something like that. They I, I, they weren't sports journalists anyway. They were travel guys anyway, and they wanted to meet me for a coffee to talk about hurling because they had been in Dublin and had got tickets for the for this match. 
And so they wanted to include it in whatever they were writing. And I went for coffee with them. And the first thing I said to them was, like, I need you guys to know that what you saw on Sunday isn't, like, that's not every week. Like, you really were at something that will be remembered for years and years and years because that game was unbelievable quality. I always, when I talk about that game, I always refer to the fact that, okay, Bubbles, as you say, he hit a free from 100 metres at the end that went to Hawkeye. First ever use of Hawkeye in an All-Ireland final, and it was to decide the All-Ireland final. And had Hawkeye not existed, it's fair chance the umpires would have given the point and Tipperary would be All-Ireland champions. But it went, it was given as a white. Hawkeye gave it as a white. And I always go back to the fact that that was the first, and that was in the 74th minute. It was the first wide since the 44th minute of that game. That was how high the quality was. The game between two teams that knew each other inside out, that had amazing players on both sides. Like Richie Hogan was the hurler of the year that year, and he was amazing in that game. Richie Power scored 2-1, uh, one of which he, he flicked over tip goalie uh, Darren Gleeson. It was a beautiful, gorgeous goal. And he t- I, I always remember him, he, he kind of went away wagging his finger after it, which is the sign of a true goal scorer who knows he's after doing exactly what he wanted to do. Um, and Bonner Romero was amazing for Tipperary. He was, the, he was just, he got through this amount of work and everything that went through him worked out well for Tipperary. Um but for a half an hour in the towards the end of a game, an All-Ireland final where everything was on the line, nobody missed. And I'll never forget that. Like, it's very rare you come across quality like that in any sport where basically for a half an hour, nobody made a mistake. Everybody knew that every shot had to go over the bar or into the net and every shot went over the bar or into the net until the very, very last one. And look at he was shooting from 100 metres and Hawkeye told, said he missed by a, an inch or two. So uh, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary game. And, you know, the reason, you know, it was so amazing was that uh, Brian Cody spent the following three weeks making damn sure that the replay would be nowhere near as enjoyable <laughs> and therefore Kilkenny won the replay. Malachi, thank you for taking us on that journey. I feel like I've been to five different events this morning and I haven't left my chair in the studio. It's been great. No problem. I'm delighted. <laughs> thank you. Take it easy. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We will be back tomorrow morning from half seven in the morning where Jer and Shane Hannon will be joined by Gareth Roberts from the Anfield Rap Formula One with Jess McFadden and Jamie Wall will be with us as well to talk about his new show. OTBAM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.